G'day, mate. Forty here. I'm streaming live on a new channel over at uh, kick.com backslash uh, Luke Ford. So I just read about kick in the New York Times. Very disturbing article, guys. It's a uh, a gambling, uh, risky pranks and lucrative contracts inside the streaming site kick. This the Twitch competitor has doled out generous deals to content creators. It's also faced criticism for its lax moderation and its embrace of online gambling. So beware of uh, kick.com. Apparently there's lax moderation. And I don't think there's anything that we're more concerned about here on this channel than than lax moderation. Uh, How deeply disturbing. So yeah, just launched my first live stream over on kick. Also, we're going out live over YouTube. We are live over Rumble and uh, going out live over Twitter and DLive and Odyssey. So I I just uh, finished a couple of books on on Tucker Carlson and Fox News, one by Brian Stelter, which uh, books on seems the more journalistically responsible, the more, you know, factually responsible book. But the the one by Michael Wolff is the, the most fun to read and I think has the deepest insights. And the Michael Wolff book contains... A lot of insight into Tucker Carlson being interested in running for president. So, here are a few few excerpts from this terrific new book by Michael Wolf. It's hilarious. So, it talks about uh, Rupert Murdoch on vacation in St. Bart's with his then wife, the former model Jerry Hall. Someone was gay. Murdoch was saying to a few friends, really his wife's friends, who had joined him at the patio table in St. Bart's. Someone at Fox News, it seemed. But then when an abrupt segue, it might seem that it was Ron DeSantis who Murdoch was increasingly seeing as a powerful alternative to Trump, who was gay, or that someone was accusing the Florida governor of being gay. Someone at Fox, possibly Tucker Carlson, was saying that Trump was saying that Ron DeSantis was gay. The connections here, even making a supreme effort to follow the low voice and the interior mumble, were not necessarily clear. So Rupert's usually been very difficult to understand. He mumbles and rumbles. Rupert, why are you such a homophobe? Jerry Hall, his, his wife, fourth wife, interjected with something more than annoyance. Then she directed, he accused him, you're such a homophobe. Then to a friend, she says, he's such an old man. Well, <laughs> there are people close to me who are related to me who definitely don't want me around their friends. <laughs> they're, they're, they're concerned that I would say something impolitic. Despite having alienated half the nation, Tucker Carlson was an adroit politician, his Varied circle included the casino billionaire Steve Wynn, the actress Harvey Weinstein accuser Rose McGowan, the former New Yorker editor and chattering class Diane Tina Brown, and the Nevada brothel owner Dennis Hoff, at whose establishment Tucker Carlson lost his virginity at the age of 14, taken there along with his brother by the family nanny at his father's direction, and at whose funeral he delivered the eulogy along with porn star Ron Jeremy. So apparently Tucker delivered the eulogy for Dennis Hoff. It included, too, almost every journalist on the hunt for Trump gossip, which Tucker Carlson was almost always willing to supply with verve and finely calculated indiscretion. He was liked by almost everyone who had spent time with him. That that speaks very well of Tucker. Carlson had devoted great effort to his relationship with the Lachlan Murdoch, the son of uh, Rupert Murdoch. Over the resentment of Fox managers, he'd come to report directly to the largely absent CEO, meaning, in effect, he had no day-to-day boss and had a chief cop launch to do with his show what he wanted. But for Tucker Carlson, there was something 
going on. If uh, James Murdoch succeeded, Tucker Carlson's transformative comet-like success would abruptly and ignominiously end. That had always been part of the strange alchemy of Fox News. It made you, it gave you a singular name, Tucker, Hannity, O'Reilly, Megan, but somehow you did not give you a star's independent life. Megan Kelly, Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, Greta Van Suster, and Paula Zahn. Fox superstars had tried to go somewhere else, and they had quickly faded away. So Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, said that uh, once you joined Fox, you really couldn't move anywhere else. It was a fate that weighed heavily on Tucker Carlson, that in the blink of an eye, he might not be the second most famous and most hated person in the country. His only alternative might be to run for president. And the book contains a lot of speculation about which people at Fox News were gay, including Bill Hammer. Uh, Roger Ailes thought that Rupert's sons, Lachlan and James Murdoch, were gay. Uh, the Murdochs hated Hannity because uh, the, the Murdochs were elitist. Then it's got a description of Laura Ingram staggering, reeling at uh, Roger Ailes' funeral. Her drunkenness, a superb rendition of exaggerated drunkenness, lashed onto Sean Hannity's sleeve, imploring, I need your help, Sean, I need your help, I need your plane. You got a plane, don't you? A plane. Hannity hardly missed, missed a beat, not hesitating, plowing forward, practically dragging her along until he pulled free, continuing his commentary. God, gross, a head in the jar. Oh, man, these planes are too small for that. So here is Tucker. He recently went on Roseanne Barr's show, and she asked him, you going to run for president? That's what's so yeah, great. That's um, first of all, on the crazy train there, how do you feel about Trump saying he would consider you for vice oh, president? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I put that in the category of asteroids striking the earth, good or bad. Uh, it's so far outside, outside of my control that I, you know, would I'm, you, I'm flattered. Yeah, it is flattering, isn't it? For sure. But I mean, it's hard to, you know, I've never been in politics. I've never. Would you ever do it? Would I accept? Yeah, if I you really I ask you. That. Um, I mean, I spent my whole life looking at politicians and commenting on them and passing judgment on them. And I've never run for, you know, room mother. And so the idea of that is so far from anything I've ever done. It's kind of hard even to imagine. What do you think? I you... certainly support Trump. I'll tell you that. And I can tell you, I mean, I've always agreed with Trump's policies, always. And I lost friends over it. Um, but and I've never really actively supported anybody because it's not my job to actively support people. Right. I watch, you know, right. I like to watch. Um, but I'm a voyeur. <laughs> yeah. But I became an active Trump supporter when they raided Mar-a-Lago last summer, the summer of 2022. That, that, that's just, that can't stand. No, that can't. And that I was something. agree with Trump on a lot. But even if I disagree with Trump on a lot, I'd still be a Trump supporter because you cannot allow that. You cannot allow the you know the regime, the president of the United States, to use the Justice Department to knock the front runner out of the race. You can't do that. No, you can't do that. So it's bigger than Trump. It's bigger than Biden. It's a question of you know, do you want to live in a free country with a functioning justice system? You know. Yeah. Tucker here confirms that he's never taken the, the COVID backs. Worship of dishonesty. Yeah. It's the hatred of the truth. Why would you hate the truth? Sometimes the truth is inconvenient. If you right. catch me cheating on my wife, I don't want you to tell the truth about it. Right. Of course, I get it. Yeah. But I don't I never even think to take pleasure in telling a lie for its own sake. I'm not angry when you tell the truth, as long as it doesn't expose my you know weaknesses or as long as I'm not hurt by it. They hate the truth because it's true. Yeah, that's And exactly. 100% of the people punished in the last five years in the public conversation have been punished for telling the truth, not for lying. And they don't even pretend otherwise. They don't call it lying anymore. They call it disinformation. Yeah, that's what they The thing about it. disinformation is it can be true. Right. But it's still verboten. How does that work? Because it's the kingdom of lies. Like, it is a kingdom of lies. That these, is exactly Think about right. all these physicians that go, I can't in good conscience go along with this yes. edict. Yes. And they lost their, they lost everything. Oh, I know. Americans lost everything well, because think about all the physicians lie. who did go along with it. That's what I keep thinking. Well, I still, I feel like they're village of the damned. I think And, that. you know, they, there will come a time when they will answer when it's just like, okay, you're going to the grocery store and you're going to get the evil eye from 10,000 people. I hope that's true. I do Because I believe true. in justice. I don't hope for anyone's suffering, but I also think you can't just pretend that it didn't happen. We didn't. And as someone who didn't take the backs and really felt under attack because of it. Me too. Um, you know, it sticks with me a little bit as someone whose children were targeted for vaccines. Like, you can't go to school unless you take a vaccine. I mean, it was a big thing. In it my was family. a big thing. And for a lot of people. And then to act like it didn't happen is it's too much. It's too much. There has to be people demand. I think nature demands certainly every world religion. 
I mean, Tucker's still very much on the top top of his game. I mean, he has so much energy, so much passion, so much drive. He's the most interesting thinker on cable TV news when he was on cable TV. So I would not be surprised if he raises vast sums of money. I mean, tens of millions of dollars. He He's taken over basically his entire team from Fox News and brought them over to his new operation. He's flying all over the world interviewing important people. He's. I still think Tucker's on an upward trajectory. I don't think that uh, this Fox firing is ultimately going to be terribly damaging to him. ...demands a moment where we say, maybe we don't you know, punish the wrongdoers, but we acknowledge that they did wrong. Yeah, and they do too. And they acknowledge it. That's exactly right. Yeah. That there's contrition and repentance. Like right. These are essential admittance. steps in the process of yeah. healing. Like admittance to know you did something wrong. What's the, tw- what's the first of the 12 steps? Admitting it. Right. But that's like, what's the first step in, in any of the Abrahamic faiths? Good, uh, good little bits in this... Uh... Tucker interview. Forward slash RB, use promo code RB for 10% off. No, I'd, I'd rather be on the street. I'd rather be poor. Yeah, I've been poor. It's not, not preferable, but better than working for those people. I, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's something, isn't it? Well, it's just, yeah. It's... You felt, remember I sent you that video when you got fired about it was you and it was a guy with your head, head but he was tap dancing and he was getting thrown out and then he starts flying. Remember yeah. that? Do you feel do like remember. you're flying? Well, I was, I mean, I was not surprised. I mean, well, of course I was surprised. I didn't expect to get, you know, my show canceled Monday morning, but, um, I wasn't, if I took three steps back, I was not surprised at all. Mm-hmm. First of all, television's like that. Mm-hmm. People get fired. There are all kinds of lines that no one will explain explicitly. I'm a very literal person, so I would totally happy if, you know, if I'm not, I'd always say, just write it down for me. Yeah. Oh, I can't say, just, just send me a text. I've got a bad memory. Yeah. That's what I say too. Oh, I, can't, exactly. I can't be conservative on a conservative TV channel. Just, just write that down for me, if you would. <laughs> just so I can have it as a reference point. <laughs> oh, well, you know the lines. No, I, I really don't, because I'm kind of stupid. So if you could just, um, but, so I knew on a dot, like I knew. Um, they were very nice to me, I should say that, and be clear about it. They were very nice to me the entire time I was there, but I could feel that they strongly disagreed in the war in Ukraine stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what it was? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just speculating. They, they really didn't like that at all. The January 6th stuff, they really oh, didn't they like. That. I think a bunch of people quit over mm-hmm. that. And, and mostly, I would say mediocre. You know, like Chris Wallace should not be on television or Jonah Goldberg. Or so, you know what I mean? These are people who obviously the audience hated and shouldn't have been there in the first place. But they were so outraged because I said, you know, it seems like there are probably a lot of feds in the crowd oh, on yeah, January 6th. And now it turns out, of course, there were, there were way more even than I imagined. The yeah. whole thing was a complete setup. Yeah. The whole thing was a lie, and it was used to put people in prison for expressing their constitutionally protected One, a, a three-tied purple heart. Okay, so the, the idea that there might be more nuance to the January 6th story than is presented in mainstream media, yeah, I, I can buy that. But the idea that the entire January 6th story was just some giant lie and just some federal government honeypot uh, trap, that's absurd. Winner. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, and they have I, no shame. No, absolutely not. And by the way, what does it say about them? Like, I would never put someone in prison, even if you made like a real crime, unless I really had to. I don't want to put people in prison. Yeah. I guess I'm the liberal. Yeah, I, I visited. I was in a prison last week. They're very depressing. I saw Julian Assange in London. I wanted to ask. I wouldn't about put people that. in prison, no. except for a very good reason. And they talk about the truth. Is, talk about the truth being illegal. Look at he's paid for it with dozens of. People. Well, Assange has never been accused of lying, or of fraud, mm-hmm. or of making money in some criminal scheme. Yeah, so Richard Spencer, who has it in for every other right-wing uh, commentator, doesn't re- almost never has anything good to say about any other right-wing commentator, uh, predicted that uh, Tucker would fade into obscurity after his Fox firing. He also s- says that Elon Musk is just some gigantic uh, con man. And I believe there is a con man component to Elon Musk, but I, I don't believe that's the most accurate descriptor for it. Assange has been accused of telling the truth, period, yeah. and they are torturing him to death yeah. in front of all of us. No one's doing anything about it. Um, and that Mike Pompeo is a very, very sinister person. Isn't he? The worst. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that, and I told Trump that. Never should have allowed him to run CIA or state. But Mike Pompeo tried to have him murdered. And that's a criminal act. He's is not that... even charged with a crime in the United States. And Mike Pompeo was CIA director. This came out. Pompeo didn't deny it. I never heard this. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. I saw it. Oh, my God. He tried to have Julian Assange murdered, poisoned in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And that's a fact, okay? Wow. And it's been established. And 
Okay. Yes. Why is Mike Pompeo not in prison? You're yeah. not allowed to right. murder people extrajudicially, especially when they haven't even been charged in the United States, which he had not been. Wow. So Mike Pompeo runs around to these stupid Republican donor events, and you're like a world expert on whatever, and he's a criminal, and he should be in jail. Like if if Julian Assange is in jail, how about the attempted murderer? Right. <laughs> how about what am I missing? How about sense. the people that? Put Julian Assange in jail. They should be in jail. 100%. First, they accuse him falsely of rape. Rape. So, you know, that just shuts people down. Oh, he's a rapist. It's like kiddie porn. It's like, I don't even want to know more. You're bad. Mm -hmm. But then it turns out there was not enough evidence to charge him. He, he didn't commit rape. That was a lie. He's never been accused of doing anything. He's, by the way, he spent four and a half years in prison in the UK at Belmarsh Prison, which is where, it's where all the murderers in London go. Good God. And he's never been charged with a crime wow. in the United Kingdom. To this day, he's not charged with a crime. He's being held at the request of the US government. And he's just sitting there and they're, they're torturing to death. I mean, he's, of course, dying as you are when you spent a total of, what, 13 years now Jeez. in incarceration. So um, it's I, I wanted Trump to pardon him and I was yeah. really disappointed. I was I was disappointed. And I think, you know, Trump, I would say one, I think, very fair criticism of Trump. He does tend to surround himself with some of the most mediocre people. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't think he can find better. That may be right. But I have to say Mike Pompeo, and I saw it up close and I saw it intimately close, is a liar and a flatterer. But where are the flatterers? You yeah. know, if someone comes up to you and says, I don't like you, fuck you. And here's why. Mm -hmm. I can deal with that. I can too. If someone's like, you know, I really think you may be the reincarnation of the Godhead. Mm -hmm. I think I think you're Buddha. Actually, I'm speaking. Yeah, yeah. That person is my enemy. <laughs> That's right. Okay? That person is trying to subvert me. Yeah. Is trying to yeah, suborn me. Yeah. There's something very feline and dangerous about that, and that's who he is. He's mm -hmm. a liar, and he's the reason that he. I, I'm not speculating. He is the reason that Trump didn't release the JFK files, uh -huh. which implicate the CIA in the murder of an American president. Right. Uh, uh, Tucker is just so incredibly reckless. Right. We have no evidence that the CIA played a role in the murder of JFK. What we have evidence of is that the CIA and the FBI didn't fully turn over all documents related to the assassination because it would reveal to the world, you know, various CIA plots, for example, for murdering Castro and, and other things that the CIA and the FBI wanted to keep hidden so that they didn't look, look bad, but not for reasons they were trying to kill the president, just that they had their own little operations going on that they didn't and still don't want revealed to the world. And, and others. And others, yeah. Yeah, well, true. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, yes. But, uh, yeah, Trump, I, that's why I, well, I'll tell you that later. But uh, <laughs> Sorry, get me going. No, no, you're going where I want to go, and I'm already there, too. But, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I wish he had done that. I think that all of us wanted him to. And do I think that. he knows that he made a mistake. And I, and I think one of the. I want him to say, if I'm reelected, I will pardon Julian Assange. Assange. And also because one man's life is as valuable as any other man's life. I mean, we're all created. The by guy God put his whole life, life on totally right. to expose to America the war crimes that we were committing. It's and completely right. And, but that's not why. Okay. The idea that one man's life is as valuable as any other man's life, uh, maybe in some completely abstract uh, perspective. Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't see it. Obviously, Elon Musk and the amazing, innovative things that he, he's doing, all right, is far more important a life than, you know, a meth head who's, you know, living on the streets. So different people have different gifts and make different levels of contribution to society. They're holding, they're holding him because – so there was the Afghanistan and Iraq files, including that famous video of the reporters getting killed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was bad. It was when he released details about the CIA – sorry, about the CIA's um, the spying program they had, including on Americans. Mm -hmm. That's when Pompeo was like, we're going to kill him now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the CIA doesn't have and any also, oversight. And also, it's also about the hacking of the DNC. That's DNC, what I think That's is. what I think they – Because he named Seth. He said someone named Seth gave him the – Yeah. So I asked him directly about that in prison. Oh. I asked him about Seth Rich. And uh, he said, I'm not going to, and, and I mean this too, he did not budge on, I'm not going to reveal my sources. Well, but that's great for him. But, it was. but it's pretty clear that those files were not hacked by Russia. No. There's no evidence they were hacked. That was a leak. Right. That they were downloaded from within the building. Right. I think Bill Binney, I think from NSA, former NSA officer, right. pretty much demonstrated that. And um, they lied about that. And we wound up at war with Russia as a result of that lie. So mm -hmm. like, that's a pivotal moment. Well, I completely missed it, by the way. 
you know, at the time, Sean Hannity was all over it. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know what that's about. I'm not getting involved in that conspiracy stuff or whatever. And then a couple years later, I happened to know some of the people involved in that personally, just because I live there. And um, I knew two people involved in it, one who worked at DNC and another who worked on MPD, the Metropolitan Police Department. And both of them were like, dude, that's come on now. And I was like, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was obvious. I thought it was. So I didn't. I was so stupid because yeah. I lived there. You know, it was like. If yeah. you're surrounded, it's like if you ever know someone with an alcoholic spouse yeah. and they get divorced and all the friends are like, you know, your wife was a really bad drunk. And he's like, I know she liked to drink, but she was an alcoholic, really? Yeah. Too way close. too close to yeah. it. Yeah. And I just couldn't see it. And I, Trump's arrival in the, re- no, it wasn't Trump, it was the reaction to Trump really from my neighbors and everyone I knew in Washington. I was like, well, something's wrong here. You can't even answer simple questions about why we're doing certain things, why NATO exists or whatever. Yeah. That was the first tip off. But it took me several years to realize just how screwed up all this stuff was yeah. because I knew everyone involved. I mean, I, you spend a lifetime somewhere in a small town like DC, you know everybody. And I'm like, I can't believe so and so was involved in something like that. And then, a lot of that stuff is true. Yeah. I mean it too. And I'm no, not speculating at all. And I'm trying to be responsible and not yeah. overstate I'll or whatever. You. But you'll say it. But yeah. <laughs> I'm just telling you, I guess what I'm saying is the more you know about it, yeah. the truer it off. Okay, I got uh, Stephen J. James. Stephen, if you want to pop on the show, love to have you. Just just let me know in the chat or via Twitter. I'll send you an invite. Uh, so I am now into about day 10, day 11 a very low dose of Adderall, taking five milligrams twice a day. So very subtle. Uh, effects so i don't notice a you know big boost in in energy or productivity or focus so the effect of the adderall is is so subtle all right i i just don't don't directly see it i just notice that i do better with mundane details of life and i notice that i'm less uh, verbally impulsive and uh, I, I just seem to be handling life better. And as I share my ADHD diagnosis with people, I, I'm hearing from other people, all right, other adults, all right, who recently became diagnosed with ADHD, got a medication, completely transformed their life. And like me, they, they have some experience of regret where they look back over their life and they realized how it could have been so much easier, so much more effective, how there were so many more paths that would have been open to them if they'd gotten this diagnosed and medicated much earlier. So you, you, you walk around with some untreated problem like ADHD and it, it can essentially mean that the normal pleasures of life are not available to you. And and then you get it. And it's not like it, it's amphetamine, but it has the opposite effect of what you'd expect for someone with ADHD. It, it's calming. The mind you know, kind of calms and clears rather than getting all uh, jittery. So as I understand it, people who, who can't sleep and get jittery on Adderall, it's when they're taking it for non-prescribed reasons when they're not truly ADHD. Uh, that's just what uh, one person told me. So, so far, no negative effect on my sleep from it. Uh, greater ease with focus and paying attention to mundane details of life and uh, less inclination to act out and say inappropriate things. Obviously is. Yeah, well, right that's in our face. Yeah. It's right in your face. It's not like, you know, where the emperor goes down the street naked no. on the horse and the people are like, hey, you're naked. Or somebody says some crazy old Jewish lady goes, you're, <laughs> you're naked. You. And they try to lock her up. But it's, it's even worse right. because it's like he's not just naked and waving his penis in everyone's face in the parades, no. which they're doing. He's rubbing his butt right on our nose because totally he's like, do something about it. You don't like it? What do you mean you don't like We're it? We're getting teabagged. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the it's funny. Joke. I was in my late 40s. <laughs> Sorry, that's so vulgar. I'm so vulgar. It's so, it. no, podcast. I, I spent my whole life. Uh, Tucker is authentic. All right. I, I don't feel like there's an enormous difference between the Tucker Carlson you get 
online and the Tucker Carlson you get doing a show and the Tucker Carlson you know in real life. As as Michael Wolf said, you know, everyone who interacts with him tends to like him. I, you know, hearing the baby boomers talk about the Kennedy assassination, and I'm just like, come on. We had a Warren Commission. There was this guy called Larry Oswald, a Marine. He defected mm-hmm. to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. It's obvious. Like, right. he hated Kennedy because he was a Cold War. It all made sense to me. I was literally in my late 40s before I was like, wait a second. This does, <laughs> the lone gunman kills the lone gunman? Mm-hmm. On TV. On TV? Like, wait, what are the odds of that anyway? Two lone gunmen, really? And anyway, so then it culminated last year when I spoke to someone at the age of 53 uh, who had seen the uh, the classified files that were not being oh, wow. released. And I spoke to someone directly. I'm not speculating. It's someone who I know for a fact saw them and who told me directly on the phone, yes, they implicate the CIA. Wow. James Jesus saying. I mean, this is this is how a lot of conspiracy theorizing goes. I know someone who saw the documents and they implicate the, the CIA. Well, they may implicate the CIA in all sorts of things, but they don't implicate the CIA. There's no evidence to believe. All evidence points against the CIA being implicated in JFK's assassination. That's, I mean, CIA is a big operation. It's not everyone in the CIA, but the operations directorate run by this guy called Angleton, very famous guy. Um, yeah, they had absolute knowledge of this and participated in it. And I was like... My head exploded. I was like, I cannot believe well, all the crazy people were. Well, right. So that's so, it was so obvious to everybody else, but because yeah. I lived there, I knew. Of course- <laughs> all right. So I think a lot of the things that Tucker says are absolutely absurd, including that. You get waxed. That's blah, true. Blah, blah, blah. Well, you can shave your balls back a bit. Anyway, let's get back to Tucker. <laughs> so I smoked one. I tried to smoke it and I quit when I was 45. I'm now 54. So nine years ago. Yeah. And I didn't like it. It's disgusting. Really? That's cool. it was It was sad. And I. So Tucker's talking here about uh, trying smoking cigarettes again. I was like, oh, I'll probably get hooked again. But you can't smoke anymore, so I figured I'm not going to get it. And I, sat, I was sitting alone in my barn, and I was like, I'm going to fire one of these puppies up. And I smoke cigars, and I, you know, I, I chew tobacco, actually, secretly Zen. Uh, quite a bit. You love so this. And then I use Zen. Yeah. I dip Copenhagen my whole, you know, since 1983, 40 years. I've, I really enjoyed it. But um, There's I, nothing like it. I lost the taste. It was like sucking it in. I didn't like it. Well, they're different now. It's well, just you, gotta, you can't just do it once, honey. you got to no, keep trying to do it. I know. I should have. Find the fifth one you'd like. You guys can go smoke now. The best cigarette I ever had, I smoked Camel Regulars, the little ones, my whole life. And then I switched at the end, at the very end of last year, I smoked American Spirit Blues. That's what everyone smokes Man, I take the filter off those things. I don't like filters. I never liked them. And I take the filter off the thing, and it was the strongest cigarette I've ever smoked in my life. Ever. Stronger than Camel, Lucky Strike, Pell Mall, anything. Chesterfield. I mean, like, stronger than any of the French cigarettes. Gitan, well, that's, blah, blah, well, that's, a, that's a strong cigarette. Yes, it is. Whoa! That does, you know, you read about, when there, whenever there's a spate of ODs, you know, in a big city, there's always some batch of heroin or fentanyl comes in that's, like, especially pure, and all the junkies line up for it, and they'll hear that someone died of it, and they'll go buy it. No, that's, right. the, sell, that's the marketing. It's the marketing, yeah. exactly. And I that's what that. American Spirit Blue with no filter felt like. <laughs> what was, oh, go. No, go ahead. Oh, I wanted to ask you about the Spain trip. I know we are running. No, I got to do my right. cigarette story first. Okay. <laughs> my first cigarette, I got to tell you, I'll tell you about my dad, kind of loony. Yeah. Was he a smoker? Oh, hell yeah. Old gold. Old gold. Uh, five packs a day. Filter tipped or not? No, no filter. Yeah. Uh, one like this all day. So he thought it was real funny. I was three. He, he got, he taught me to smoke when I was three years old. Oh, that's so great. I know. It Te- was teach so your good. children. I always say. And I did, I did it. And he'd have his friends and uh, he'd go, come here, Rosie. And uh, so I'll do it. They'd all laugh, you know, I, I knew how to do it real young. Uh, it's such an expression of, I don't know, don't even get me going. But I, I think, I mean, obviously smoking long-term is bad for you physically. Of course, it's not bad for you spiritually. It's mm-hmm. so good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his letters and papers from prison, which I totally recommend. He's in a Flossenburg prison in Germany. He's been implicated in the Hitler assassination plot, and he's going to be hanged, which he was, right, in, at the end of the war in 1945. But he has this collection of letters to his sister, who's unmarried. And in it, he keep, you know, he's talking about God and God is sustaining him, and he thinks he did the right thing, even though he'll be killed. But every letter is like, please send more tobacco. Almost out <laughs> of cigarettes. C.S. Lewis, same thing. I mean, there's no yeah. – smoking is bad for you, but it is not a sin against your spirit at all. At all. And I do think that having done drugs, I'll admit it, 
Uh, a lot of drug use is. It changes yeah. who you are, actually. Right. And it makes it harder to have meaningful relationships what with people. So the caffeine? fact that we hate cigarettes but encourage everyone to smoke weed that's like 40% THC yeah. is completely changing your brain. Right. Or prescription drugs. What, or, or SSRIs yeah. or whatever. Well, that's how I was going to ask you because you crazy. said your writing process. And I'm like, dude, how can you write if you're not smoking? Well, Because that's why I started to get difficult. it. difficult. But the Zen, I have to say, which is just concentrated nicotine, really helped. But, you know, I missed it. And uh, Did it affect But I'll tell you what, body? I don't take anything else. I mean, I don't even take Advil. Did it affect your writing that you couldn't smoke? Well, if I'm being totally honest, I've only gone off nicotine once in my life since I was a child. I started when I was 13, and I'm, you know, so I've smoked or used nicotine for 41 years, and I've only gone off for one. How long was it, Emily? Three or four months? Yeah, but I mean, Emily, Emily's worked for me like that. Just like that. No, yeah, I gained like roughly about 40 pounds <laughs> and became crazy and uh, started. I, I, I think I'd like to think I get along with everyone I work with, and I never have. Have you ever heard me yell at anyone? No, not a yeller at all. And uh, and I went so crazy <laughs> on someone from the HR department when I went off. I, got, I went so crazy on this person, like the head of HR. Uh, in the city that I probably shouldn't talk about this, but um, because I was off nicotine and she looked afraid and I could feel myself. I was like, I lost control. I said, get the fuck out of my office right now. And then I filed an HR complaint against the head of HR. <laughs> and, and I called I called my producer and I'm like, I want to file an HR complaint. You filed it. And he's like, whoa, whoa. Um, so yeah, it made me, I think if you use anything long enough, I'm not bragging about this at all, by the way. I'm saying this with some contrition and I and I'd like to apologize to her uh, for being that crazy. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah. some people, I guess, are meant to live without it, but not you. Probably not. But what about when you. Okay, let me quickly run down my recommended uh, reading list. Uh, novels, Middle March by George Eliot, the best novel about under-earning, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, best novel ever, uh, Predisposed Liberals, Conservatives, and the Politics of Political Differences, uh, John M. Doris's 2005 book, Lack of Character, Personality, Moral Behavior, a few books by John Mearsheimer, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, then in 2018, his book, The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities, Recommend Charles Murray's book, The Bell Curve, Intelligence and Class Structure in American Life. Some books by Mark B. Shapiro, such as Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History, and Limits of Orthodox Theology, Maimonides' 13 Principles Reappraised, as well as his first major book, Between the Yeshiva World and Modern Orthodoxy, The Life and Works of Rabbi Yehiel Yaakov Weinberg. I recommend Robert Caro's 1974 book, The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York. So Robert Moses for about 40 years, was the most powerful man in New York, even though he was never elected to anything. So an excellent book on the nature of power. I recommend a short little book by Viktor Frankl, came out in 1946, Man's Search for Meaning. I recommend Ronnie Goldman's Work in Progress, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. For recovery and mental health, I recommend Forgive for Good, A Proven Prescription for Health and Happiness by Fred Luskin. I recommend uh, Herb Kay's Guide to the 12 Steps, 12-Step Guide to Using the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, Personal Transformation, The Promise of the 12-Step Process, uh, Men and Marriage by George Gilder, came out in 1986, The Nine Questions People Ask About Judaism by Dennis Prager and Joseph Telushkin, Albion Seed, Four British Folkways in America by David Hackett Fisher, as well as his 2012 book, Fairness and Freedom, History of Two Open Societies, New Zealand and the United States. I recommend... French neuroscientist Hugo Mercier's 2020 book, Not Born Yesterday, The Science of Who We Trust and What We Believe. I recommend journalist Annie Murphy-Paul's 2021 book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. I recommend The Examined Life, How We Love and Find Ourselves by Stephen Gross. I recommend Eric Hoffman's 2019 book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, as well as his 2004 book, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America. I recommend James Tabor's 2012 book, Paul and Jesus, How the Apostle Transformed Christianity. I recommend Philip Shannon's 20, 2009 book, The Commission, The Uncensored History of the 9-11 Investigation. 
I recommend a 2012 book, Attach, The New Science of Adult Attachment, How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love. I recommend Sue Johnson's 2013 book, Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. I recommend The Father Factor, How Your Father's Legacy Impacts Your Career, and The Mother Factor, How Your Mother's Emotional Legacy Impacts Your Life. I recommend Betrayals, The Unpredictability of Human Relations by Gabriella Turnaturi. And uh, Corporate Confidential, 50 Secrets Your Company Doesn't Want You to Know and What to Do About Them by Cynthia Shapiro. You're right. Now, are you on the computer or do you longhand it? No, I'm, I I'm, have dyslexia and I'm yeah. left-handed, right? I dominant. I mean, I can barely write at all. So I, I even write on my phone. I've written a lot of scripts on my phone. So what, what are you doing when you're like, you, you can't go like this? <laughs> Totally. You can't do that. I always what? write with one in my mouth. I have a oh, okay. I silver cup in the church I grew up in. When you get baptized, they, they give you a silver cup. I don't know if they still do this, but it's next to my bed now to hold my, my reading glasses. But for 25 years, it sat on my writing desk, and I would take a pack of camels, and it fit of 20 cigarettes. And I'd take the pack of camels and dump it in the silver cup right in front of me. It has my name on it, you know, Tucker Carlson, 1969, you know, Episcopal Church or whatever. And I would sit, and they don't have filters on it, so you can either way you do it. You can pull them out or flip them over. It doesn't matter. I keep them right there, and I burn through multiple packs. But it's now, like industrial smoking. But now you can write without that, huh? Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been nine years and, okay. um, and also the beauty of working in TV, I don't have this anymore, but we work live, obviously. So I had a deadline for my script. I filed at 745 for an 8 p.m. show. I had to have it at a period. I mean, the show was going to go on no matter what. Yeah. So that was such a wonderful motivator, the fear uh-huh. of that. And that is yeah, the only yeah. thing I miss from working in live TV, which I don't miss at all. Um, because it wrecks your life. It makes you crazy. But making the deadline. I love the deadline. Yeah, I, I love because I'm so lazy. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And entitled and like, I don't know, I'm going to go fishing or <laughs> play with my dogs or whatever. Chase my wife around. Um, a TV show, like you have no, you know, yeah. no choice but to be serious. And I, I do miss that. So, so smoking or not, you still have to write the script. Period. Well, how is it affecting you now though? When you don't have like the Gestapo waiting for you? To well, I kind of like it. I mean, I'm obviously older. I mean, I'm I'm kind of marching for death here, and uh, <laughs> I like being free. I took seven foreign trips out of the country wow, that's over the last. Cool. La- yeah, it was neat. You never did that before. No, you right? couldn't. I, I mean, we go, you know, whatever. Go to Europe for a week in the summer with my kids or something. But no. I, and we take one foreign trip or two a year at Fox, but I really want to know what's going on in the rest of the world. I think yeah. it's so interesting. And so you just flew to Spain, yeah, yeah last night, and demonstrated against communist takeover <laughs> I on your weekend. I didn't mean to. I went to go watch actually, um, but yeah, I got it was great. But anyway, it was so liberating and great just to be able to see what's going on. I went to the Middle East. I went to South America. I went all over Europe, East and West, and I just I learned so much. If you live here. In the United States, we're cut off from everybody by oceans, yeah, and you have no freaking idea what's happening. Well, we don't world. care either. You, we don't. Yeah. Care. Thank you. We don't. Exactly right. They don't care. Uh, it's true. I don't. Really. Well, because we we're so uh, bombarded by useless information twenty four seven. Yes, and lies. And yeah, and lies. Bullshit. We we don't have any space. You know, our memory is full. We don't have any space to contain facts or you know actual things going on in the world. And the arrogance Come of being on. American, like you think you're the only thing that matters. That's how I always feel. Yeah, I feel, and, not, and the rest oh, of the world feels really yeah. different. I do feel that way. I, I actually feel that the way. The problem is that things change, and but in your memory, they don't. Yeah. It's almost like you run into someone you knew when you were a kid or whatever, and they're like fat and bald, and you're yeah. like, wow, I can't, you're not 14 anymore. Yeah. It's just happened to me in an airport. And uh, like, what happened? Well, time moved on, but you weren't paying attention, and, and the world is the same mm-hmm. way. When I was a kid, we traveled a lot as a family, and you'd be, dr- I, mean, I remember getting pulled over drunk driving in, a, in Latin America in the 80s. When I was a freshman in college. I was just hammered. It was a rain. So I pulled over the military police. I'll never forget in this country. And I was like, I'm an American. Like, they can't do anything to me. Mm. Like, the arrogance oh of being God. an American then. Mm-hmm. So I've got a blue passport. I'm sorry. You may not know this, but there's <laughs> my. Now I'd be like, fuck you. You're going to jail. Yeah. Like, our ability to awe the rest of the world has just evaporated. Yeah, that's gone. Exactly. It's gone. That's all gone. It's the, it's the opposite. Yeah. You don't want to say you're American if you go to It's sad. It bums me out. And you don't get a sense of that living here at all. When, when, uh, in Spain, I mean. Right. A lot of uh, good little portions of this uh, Tucker appearance on Roseanne Barr. One more um, clip. I go, what? He goes like this. Glug, 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 glug. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask you before. I don't know how long we have. We have a few minutes. I have to hit the hour mark. So we've got about seven minutes. I have to ask him about Kaczynski. Yeah. That's what we really want to talk about. If you about want. I don't want to get in trouble. Oh, Uncle Ted? Oh, we love him. We were, you and I were talking about it. Genius. I, yeah. I mean, I don't so want. So let me just say, just, I'm really trying to be a responsible citizen. You can edit anything else. But we kind of get crazy. No, no, no. I just want to say, like, I think it's very bad. 
to send mail bombs to people. Of course. And, Absolutely unacceptable. And yeah. David Gornter, who is a, one of the people I respect in this world, who's a computer science professor at Yale, yeah. was gravely injured by the by Ted Kaczynski yeah. with a mail bomb. So I'm totally opposed to that. But also, I'm opposed to the personal behavior of many artists and intellectuals. Right. I can't right. think of a single. I love Tolstoy. Yeah. I'm glad my daughter didn't marry Tolstoy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like, yeah. I'm capable of separating the two. His the Industrial Society and its Consequences, and then the second book, his name was Escapes Me, but I read them both. They wrote in prison. Like some of those things I've ever read in my life. Yeah, ever. Me too. Me too. And the irony is, I think. He committed all those crimes, killed people in order to get publicity for this manifesto, this book. And it had the opposite effect, which yeah. people, you know, which that is that the people ignore it yeah. because it's the rantings of a crazy man. We'll read the book. And basically the thesis is, I mean, he was no liberal either. I didn't realize that. No, but, he was not. No, he's, and he's a genius. You know, he's like Absolutely. one of the youngest math professors in Berkeley. History, and uh, let's but get uh, Stephen James back onto the show. Stephen, what's going on, man? What's new with you? Hey, Luke, is my audio okay? Yeah, you sound great. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what's what's new with you? Uh, not a great deal. I was interested in talking to you about uh, Adderall for a few minutes, maybe. Great, please. Long, really. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. What, what are you curious about? So you mentioned that the mundane things, uh, it's allowing like you to cut through um, and just kind of carry out mundane tasks. Is, am I, is that what I'm gathering? Yeah, it, it, I'm on a very low dose and the effect is very subtle. So for, for some people, it's like, you know, a, whole, a brand new world, brave new world when they get on Adderall, you know, the heavens part yes. that, you know, the mind dramatically clears. I, I would have a hell of a time pointing directly to anything because it's a low dose. But I do think, so I, I do think it's very subtle but I think I do a little better paying attention to mundane tasks, uh, routine details of life that aren't exciting that I would previously, my mind would just go to sleep about. You know, when I first heard you mention this, it really resonated with me, Luke. Um, this idea, I hadn't really actually conceptualized it in my own mind before about how tasks get left undone that normal people actually uh, just just seem to get along with like paperwork and things like that and how this can lead to consequences in life and when i heard you mention it on a stream last week i was like holy shit that is that has been a huge part of my life too so um yeah i've lost what I lost to come on i've say. lost paperwork this cost me tens of thousands of dollars yeah. and a great deal of aggravation and humiliation. I sold a car and didn't get proper paperwork for it. And so I was on the hook for all sorts of uh, parking tickets. Holy shit. Hey, I can tell, maybe I shouldn't share this, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Hey, right. Safe space. Yes, it's a safe space here on the Luke Ford show. Between you and me, nobody listening. Yeah. Uh, so look, I could. <laughs> I have this issue, right? Back in something like 2014, Luke, right? The early stages of Bitcoin. I got into Bitcoin as like a kid, right? Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere on a hard drive, I could have like at least a minimum number of bitcoins like at least the number on like uh that you could maybe count in a hand but potentially a huge number somewhere and this is now like 10 years over 10 years ago i was a kid at the time um 
many computers since. I have these things on like hard drives, uh, basically in the attic. And, you know, just the potential, just the like impossibility. The task just seems so enormous that I've never been able to put myself through attempting to find these things. And yeah, and this, this is going to sound absolutely insane to anybody that's listening. They're going to be like, what the hell? Are you ridiculous? You could have like a life-changing amount of money sat there or something. But just like the, it just, there's just like this blockage or something. That's this blocking thing in front of my, in front of my mind to just, just put myself through the task of attempting to go and look for this shit. Yeah, yeah, I've I've always had to do that, which is exciting. That resonate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, losing routine paperwork, not keeping track of important details, and constantly searching for stimulation and excitement, and and just having my mind check out when I'm faced with mundane routine reality that is not exciting, and. I mean, just the wreckage of the consequences of that are just absolutely enormous. And I was talking to a friend and suddenly I found out that he'd been diagnosed with ADHD and he talked about how he could have done great in school, but he just couldn't pay attention to details. So smart guy, accomplished guy, but his life choices were severely narrowed because of his inability to you know, concentrate on routine details. Yeah. So when I heard you mention that, I I hadn't even realized that this is, is like a big consequence of ADHD. Like, I still don't think that I'm tempted to go and get medicated, Luke. Um, and, you know, after I, I played on one of my streams, uh, that walk and talk video you did where I said Luke Ford psychoanalyzing my situation here. But much of it was true. Many of the things that you're saying were true. Uh, but loads of people came and were counselling me um, against it. And <laughs> um, so, How many of those people yeah. who are counselling you against it, do you think, were married with kids, six-figure incomes? Or did they want to keep you a loser like them? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, I don't think people see themselves as losers and want them... And want me to be a loser. It, it's a funny thing. Uh, because advice always comes. Uh, from a place. Of I think. People are seeing. Seeing you fuck up. Pun, pun French. Uh, but and, and. Or potential pitfalls. And it comes from a, a good place. Wouldn't you say? Or do, do you really think. Well, that people it's, are thinking, it's okay, I want to drag this guy down. No, I, I don't think they're explicitly f feeling, I want to drag this guy down, but w we see the world as we are much more than than as as the world is. So people generally don't want you to change. I mean, people who enjoy your streams don't want you to change, even though what may well be in your best interest may well be for you to stop streaming. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not recommending this. I'm just saying that mm. your best interests and the viewer's best interests uh, maybe, in fact, going in completely opposite directions. Yes. I'm getting a lot of bumping with the mic. I don't know if you're able to not bump your mic. 
I mean, it sounds good aside from aside from the bumping. But aside from the idea of giving advice comes from a good place, it comes from the place of the person who's giving the advice. And so uh, if someone's messed up, they are overwhelmingly going to give you messed up advice. They, they can't help it. If someone's in a good place, they're probably going to give you good advice because, again, they almost can't help it. So uh, for I remember in one of my 12-step programs, it talks about the need to rescue and the need to be rescued come from the same sick place. I, I know at various points in my life, I've wanted to be rescued. And then I've also had times where I've gotten, you know, an emotional high from rescuing others. And, and yeah, I recognize that comes from a sick place. And, and so we can't do anything but speak from the position that we're in. So I, I would just be highly skeptical that these are high functioning people who are telling you stay just the way you are. Yeah. Uh, how have you dealt over the years with like audience capture, Luke? Uh, I don't know if that's the right term, but people no, it's the right term, do. and I've struggled with. Uh, I mean, it's been intoxicating to me because you now I grew up in in foster care, so I, I've always been looking for love. You know, I wouldn't do so many live streams if I wasn't looking for love, and if I wasn't so awkward at you know getting and receiving it in in real life. So, audience applause is is you know highly emotional experience for me it's it's you know, really just washed over me but then uh, i've seen the the humiliation that has often resulted from it and and so i guess just the the pain and humiliation all right i have it's nothing without specifics so um i will get a bigger audience the more extreme the shows i do all right. And and the more I will get more applause, the more extreme I go and the more anti-establishment I go. So I noticed that when I really burst on the scene in, in 2018, like doing shows with Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker and people Absolutely. of that ilk, you know, those would get the most views, the most applause. And when I could say anything that was at all akin or sympathetic to what these people were saying, that's what would get me the most applause. And luckily, at about the same time I started doing that, I read The Dangerous Perils of the E-Personality. And I kind of, mm. I was able to somewhat spot what was happening, but I still got, I still got sucked in, right? I, I still, yeah. you know, said things that I regret. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult, it's, but it, it's a symptom. It's a, almost everything's a symptom of something deeper. So... To the extent that I've been able to build a life of self-respect for myself over the past six years, approximately, uh, the less vulnerable I become to audience capture. So the, the problem is not audience capture. The problem is how vulnerable am I to things like audience capture, but also a hundred other things as well. Uh, so as long as I'm vulnerable, you know, people are going to come along and take advantage of my vulnerability or they're going to, you know, uh, incentivize me to go in, in directions that are against my best interests. But the problem's not audience capture and the problem's not o other people. The problem is that I don't consistently lead a life of self-respect from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed. Once I have a pretty good handle on that, then audience capture largely disappears as a problem. You know, once you like, so for me, adopting the mindset that everybody knows everything. So 
graduating from the idea I'm trying to get away with something. Uh, so that was essential. Also, yes. what would okay. what would my words and deeds look like if they were published on the front page of the New York Times fairly and, and yep. accurately? I mean, in, imbibing those two ideas uh, kind of helped me to develop a life of self-respect. And then audience capture just didn't become much of much of a problem. Like I used to like to gamble in high school, but I haven't gambled since high school uh, because I kind of got that sorted out. Gambling's not good for me. So I watch sports and there are innumerable gambling ads, but they don't really have much of an effect on me. And so audience capture no longer has much of an effect on me because I've largely created a life that from the time I get up, usually on average at 4 a.m., the time I go to bed, usually on average about 8.30, 9 p.m., I'm pretty much doing everything that not only I would respect, but my family would respect, people in my synagogue would respect, and you know, you would respect if you, you know, knew the details. It's not like when I'm not live streaming, I'm engaging in, you know, behavior that I'd be, you know, appalled and ashamed and embarrassed to have, you know, put forward to the world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you experienced it too. The moment that you start to get a little popular, people want to befriend you. Um, and people like, um, you become more, uh, interesting to people or people just want to have you around. And then they start talk talking to you or feeding you things that they want you to do. Uh, am I resonating in any way? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I How mean, everyone no has their own people, agenda. Luke? How do you say no to Again, people who you, yeah. who's, who you want to impress? How do you do yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely have, there are a lot of people who I want to impress, uh, mm -hmm. but that's a, a symptom. Once again, once I get myself sorted out so that I develop self respect, then my need for other people to provide me you know, with admiration or, you know, give me positive strokes, uh, that just considerably diminishes. So this desire to accommodate others, it's a symptom of not respecting yourself, right? Self-esteem is the opinion, is the reputation you have with yourself. And if you can develop a good reputation with yourself, then it's not nearly as important to one to to uh, meet the needs of other people, particularly if you see them going against your own, own best interests. So I think it's, it's primarily a matter of getting yourself together, developing a good reputation for yourself with you know, a life worthy of self-respect, and then these other problems considerably diminish. So I'll still meet people who intoxicate me, you know, particularly you know, pretty young women yeah. or very successful and accomplished uh, men. And it's like, oh, you know, I just want to hang around with these people. I want their, their good opinion. But mm. my yearning for that is considerably diminished if I'm standing on my own two feet and I'm leading a life that not just I would respect, but would be considered respectable if it was broadcast to the world. Sure. Yeah, that's... Yeah, th those two are often in conflict um, as I see it. You know, I never go around thinking, do I respect myself or things like that. Um, I think in many ways my self-esteem is in probably wholly in what other people think of me. Um, and as I go around in the world, I'm thinking, how, how do other people judge me? How do I come across? 
uh, what is my reputation uh, to these people based upon what they know of me already I rarely ever I rarely ever spend a moment to think <sighs> yeah maybe we're just in, in, t in two different mindsets here so you you go around thinking do I respect myself like actively is that what you're saying well that's my my primary goal now I I, I definitely get around other people and uh, I think why aren't they including me why aren't they inviting me? I, I went on a hike uh, a few months ago, and I ran into four acquaintances of mine, like people I've known for years. And when we were done saying hi, and we'd gone our separate ways, I think it would never have occurred to any of these blokes to invite me along. Uh, Holy so, shit, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I still feel that uh, keenly, you know, when I'm not invited to play, when I'm you yes. know, not invited in, I, I still feel that. I think, though, my primary consideration is do I respect myself? And and evidence for that is that I frequently do live streams where virtually every single person in the chat disagrees with me. And I, I yes. don't back down. So I am very pro-vaccination. The overwhelming majority of my audience is anti-COVID vaccination. I am pro getting medicated for ADHD. The overwhelming majority of my audience is opposed to getting medicated for ADHD. I believe that the 2020 elections in the United States were, were fair and that uh, voter fraud would not have played a, a significant role in the outcome of those elections. Most of my audience uh, passionately disagrees with me. Uh, I'm coming around on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so if I can, if I can stand up and I can say things that virtually everyone in the chat disagrees with, that to me is, is evidence that I've arrived at a place of self-respect, that I say things that, that I respect even yes. though everyone in the chat is, is against me. That, that shows that I can stand on my own two feet and that I don't need yeah. you know, someone else. So I'll just give you one more example. I know I've written something good if after I've composed it, I then open up a new browser and I read the the blog post for myself or the essay for myself. And if I get a chuckle out of it, if I enjoy it, then I know I've written something that's good, even if nobody else comments on the essay or the blog post, right? Even if no one else says yeah. it's good, if I read it in a new browser, look at it, and I enjoy it, and, and I, I think I'm making some good points, and I get a chuckle out of it, okay, that's self-authenticating and so i i have by no means graduated from comparing myself with others and noticing others there's no way to graduate and it's not even desirable we need to constantly compare ourselves to others for informational purposes maybe they're doing things that i need to do and you know there are various reasons and maybe i need to repair those relationships or i mean we can't help but compare ourselves to others but we we don't have to put the vast majority of our self-esteem in their hands. I find that is, is a very volatile and dangerous thing. Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly a challenge. Um, certainly, definitely in the early stages of gaining any popularity whatsoever. I feel like in, say, the last few months, my online streaming, for whatever reason, has gone like, it's not necessarily my content, but the attention that I'm getting has gone up a gear. And I've noticed a distinct amount of more attention 
that I'm getting. I even, even on last night's show, I was just, right, this, just this morning, I was just tuning in to Jeff Gariepi's show. And there I was just watching it. And halfway through the show, about three quarters through, somebody sends a super chat in to Jeff Gariepi, a guy I've never heard of. And his super chat was, Dear Jeff Gariepi, there appears to be a young man in England called Stephen J. James, who is on the verge of uh, throwing away his old life or something with, uh, and about to become a dissident on the internet. Would you have any advice for such a young man? And I'm there thinking, what the hell is going on here? Uh, <laughs> and so these are very surreal moments. I don't think I am that guy, by the way. Uh, but other people seem to think that that's the situation I'm in. Um, well, yeah. yeah, it comes. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying people will rarely see you as you are. People will project, mm. you know, things onto you. And so I, I think what was going yes. on in that particular instance was someone projecting things onto you because you've been doing more dissident right adjacent live streams over the past few months. So you took a few months off, then you came back and you did um, with that Thomas guy. You've done, you know, you've, you've met the, those desperate cravings among people on the dissident right for some, some content. There's very little that's out there on, on sure. YouTube in particular. So you're meeting a desperate, desperate need. It's just like a woman who's a five, all right? And, mm -hmm. and she's hit up by these guys who haven't had sex in years. And, you know, they are flattering her and they are trying to seduce her and, you know, they are doing absolutely everything they can to try to get their, you know, needs met with this woman who is objectively a five, but due to the severe nature of their need, you know, she, she becomes everything to them. And so there is a huge need for the type of material that you're pumping out and, so people are responding to you from that place of great hunger. Okay, yeah. That's what I, I think. I mean, want... what do you think of that? It's possible. I'd like to believe people can see some potential in me and they want, I think, yeah, I think that's probably it. They want to mold me to become that thing. Um, they see there's a potential for me to become this dissident right-wing commentator or something. I don't know why. Uh, probably, like you say, it is because I've just started tackling some of these topics. I have Duvid on every other week now. Uh, immigration's coming up. I'm being, a I'm being asked to take positions on these things on the internet. It's probably not in my best interest, but when it happens, you do it, don't you? Um, and my instincts are naturally... Well, let's just call them antithetical to the mainstream. Um, so, yeah, people also don't like somebody who oh, is, is like holding back. And so I give a sense of this, that I'm like walking the fence because I'm worried about hate speech laws in the United Kingdom. And that's the right thing to do, I think. I think you would counsel me that this is the right thing to do. Be very careful of what you say. Don't put yourself in any actual... Uh, real world harm trouble but people don't like that when they're listening they want you to drag it out of you and they sense that it's deep within you and you, and you just want to blurt it out and so they they like a, they they're tugging for it to some extent i mean i i can give you another arena where you would get just as much uh praise and and maybe even more 
And that is if you started becoming a commentator on the world of pornography. Because again, you don't have a lot of, you know, intelligent, <laughs> okay. thoughtful people. But if you started, you know, providing, you know, regular YouTube streams on, you know, news and and controversies going on in the porn world, just like I did on my blog for 10 years, you'd get an enormous amount of attention because one, there's a huge audience for, for gossip about the porn industry. And two, you know, very few people are, are providing it. And so, mm. so yes. you know, if you wanted to go, uh, if you wanted to go swim laps in a sewer, right, you wouldn't keep bumping into people, right? There, there wouldn't be many people in the sewer like getting into your lane and bumping you as as you go for your for your morning swim, but uh, most people don't want to swim in a sewer. And for normal society, both the pornography industry and the distant right are considered sewers. Yes, it certainly is, and it, it's swimming with sharks too. Yeah, uh, so definitely got to be careful of that. <sighs> Okay, right, Luke, I think I need to hop off. Um, right. It's been great just talking with you for a few minutes there again. Um, I'm sure I'll have more to discuss in, in the future. Sounds good. Uh, take care, Stephen. Bye-bye. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me, boy. Yep, bye. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about this new book by Michael Wolf on Fox News. Just read a few excerpts and then play some more clips from Tucker Carlson. Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, was largely barred from instructing or even talking to the network's leading primetime anchors and major moneymakers, Carlson and Hannity. What could she tell them, after all, that their ratings did not already say? It was Scott's management mantra, don't fix what isn't broken. And in the variegated ecosystem of Fox misogyny, Laura Ingram was derided as a hopeless drunk, a bad drunk, a puke-spewing drunk. And two, she had thrown herself, drunk or not, at every man in the conservative movement. This since her undergraduate years at Dartmouth, that particular hotbed of conservatism in the 1980s, where she first made her reputation and yet never sealed the deal. In a story that has long haunted her, she used a garden hose to flood the basement of a boyfriend who jilted her. She had three adopted children now. She was, in the telling of many men at Fox and through a socially unreconstructed conservative movement, a gross, pathetic drunk and a skank. Cue the huge peal of laughter. Every on-air woman of Fox was selected for the feminine role that she could fill, aside from Laura Ingram. Roger Ailes was very precise about who he was casting and for what role. Beyond that, each woman needed to be not just white, but not ethnic, not to look Italian, Jewish, Hispanic, Greek, or too far from an Anglo-Saxon, Irish, Nordic standard. Long-legged, usually blonde, and in a hairstyle, that said, somewhere other than New York and generally a former beauty pageant type, each needed to have a more particular sexual role function, the girl next door, the vixen, the disciplinarian. It was casting. All had to rise to what Roger Ailes called the American blowjob test. This was a homegrown Roger Ailes theory, which he was pleased to frequently expound upon about every man's evaluation of whether or not a woman would give head and with what verve and style. One of his favorite formulations, to get ahead, you have to give some head. So I'm thinking about the Nicolas Cage movie, The, the Weatherman, and early on, he and his wife go to counseling, and they each have to write something on a piece of paper that they find disappointing about the other. And the Nicolas Cage character wrote down, I feel like your blowjobs lack enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, how many women out there enthusiastically give blowjobs in an ongoing relationship? 
like the enthusiastic blowjobs that I've received have, you know, almost always occurred in the, like the, the first week of a sexual relationship. So uh, generally speaking, I, I think it's, it's true that uh, six weeks is about the half-life of a sexual relationship. So about six weeks in, it will tend to be half as intense as it was at the beginning. Roger Ailes said that uh, news is a variety show. It's sexy girls and outrageous men. Has to be clear what everybody is playing, what role they are in. Everybody needs to play broad, to play big, to play character. Don't try to be subtle. This is America. So the look of cable news when he launched Fox in 1996, it looked like a classroom. I wanted Fox to look more like daytime television. So the women were important. Their job was to be familiar to other women in a non-threatening way and yet still have men want to have sex with them. Accomplishing both of those things was the vital part. Fox women, not yuppie women or aspirational women or professional women. They're TV women, game show girls. They come out of the American imagination. TV put them there. Then there's a great quote from Tucker in the book. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not anti-black, Tucker explains. I'm anti-Catholic. Now, he's being partially ironic, but... Tucker is high church Anglican. So his atavism, right, his primitivism was a purer kind than that of Fox or even Donald Trump. He reached back further, recalling an even more absolute America. The tumble into a diverse immigrant society began with the Catholics. So Roger Ailes preferred to hire Catholics, particularly Irish Catholics. So when Roger Ailes hired Tucker Carlson, he was straightforward in telling him that his future was limited at Fox, not because he was a conservative who liberals could like, but because he wasn't Irish Catholic. So Tucker's snobby Protestant conservatism, once the identity of the entire conservative establishment had been upended by Roger Ailes' protean right-wing Irish Catholic garrulousness. Fox and Ailes had helped unite Catholics and evangelicals in their crusade against abortion. Carlson was sniffy toward both down-market versions of the Christian faith, right? Both those versions, Roman Catholicism and evangelical Christianity that made opposing abortion a top priority. Rupert Murdoch, like Carlson, saw the world in ethnicities far more nuanced than the modern brown-white divides. In this world, there was a whole range of white distinctions involving ever finer meaning and standing. In other words, that all, all wogs begin at Calais. Liz Murdoch, Roger, Rupert Murdoch's daughter, went to Vassar. Then uh, unconstrained gay campus, Murdoch would grumble about having to pay for a puff to school. She emerged in the 1990s living with a black man, Elkin Pianim, and she eventually married him and had two kids. Then when she was pregnant with her husband's second child, she ran off with another man, Matthew Freud, who she also later divorced. Uh, Rupert Murdoch in 2022-2023 became increasingly agitated by reports about Tucker Carlson's possible presidential ambition and the presumption of it. And then uh, Michael Wolf analyzes some of Tucker Carlson's speeches. For an outwardly jovial person, Tucker is a, presents an unrelenting, bleak vision, even a dystopian one. There's no happiness in the American soul. He's set to work himself up. There's psychic misery everywhere. There are no possibilities of fulfillment or contentment. The culture had delegitimized all those things that had once brought fulfillment and contentment. There was a collapse of morality. This might appeal to the Christian right, but what he specifically meant was a collapse in honesty and personal courage and an individualist ethos, not too similar from the Ayn Rand line. On top of this was a catch-all of moral compasses that included novels, poetry, art, Hunter Thompson. This is where you found truth. His wife is a great reader. 
clung with truth. Beauty was the issue here. Beauty had been lost. Beauty had been sacrificed. His villains were not so much atheists and liberals, but bureaucrats, apparatchiks, cogs in the machine and their collaborators, the establishment, politicians, corporate anything, the Academy, the New York Times, the networks, and even the Murdochs. The problem with all of the above was not their views, not their politics, but they were inherently corrupt, dishonest, unprincipled, bent with an allegiance to no one and nothing except the expedient and themselves. They stood for nothing. They were weak, lily livid, gutless, craven, and grotesque. It's that. There's a massive cost. That's a really good summary of uh, Tucker Carlson's worldview. So Brian Stelter's book is much more journalistically sound, but Michael Wolf's book is deeper. So even if Michael Wolf fails on some of his facts, his level of insight is much keener and deeper than that presented by Brian Stelter. Technology. I mean, if I summon one phrase, yeah. there's a massive cost to technology that we don't perceive, and it's entirely possible, in fact, likely, in fact, certain, that technology will progress to a place where we can't control it and that it will instead control us. And I, clearly we're there. Yeah. And, clearly. And it's dehumanizing, and it, has, it, it extracts a massive toll from the physical landscape, the environment, which I care very strongly about. Not global warming bullshit, but like the actual yeah. environment. Yeah. You know? planet. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I love Evolution it. I'm a sportsman. Good. I'm an outdoorsman, so yeah. it's meaningful to me, very meaningful. So anyway, I think that his two books are among the most interesting I've ever read, and I've given them to people, and everyone acts like I'm crazy or want to <laughs> live in a cabin in Montana, which of course I do. But yeah. uh, I don't think that makes you crazy. Actually, yeah. I think what's crazy is working at Citibank. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like driving in from some depressing suburb in New Jersey for an hour and a half in traffic to work a soulless job that has no inherent meaning whatsoever. That's mm -hmm. probably actually net net bad for the world to be mistreated by some disgusting series of supervisors in the HR department, and then to schlep home to a wife who hates you because you've been emasculated. Like that's the experience of millions of people. Yeah. yeah. Is that crazier than living in a cabin alone in Montana and growing your own food? It's way crazier. It's I agree. Way, I did way crazier. live. I, I did agree. live in a cabin in the mountains of Colorado. Ah! Yeah. Okay, so there's there's a good little summary of Tucker's worldview and then a, a clip that kind of encapsulates it. All right, back to this uh, Michael Wolf book. So it talks about Tucker going to Iowa to talk to Christians and how uh, Tucker presents himself as the last honest man standing. And then there's a, a Michael Wolf summary of the Tucker speech where Tucker's saying, you see, the issue wasn't merely abortion. It was so much beyond that, meaning that Tucker could then skip over the prosaic abortion debate, and therefore he, a relativist, not to mention a one Episcopalian, could avoid the absolutist demands of the argument. No, the true issue was corporations. He could easily snatch that liberal issue. That's why Tucker is the most interesting, was the most interesting man on TV, because he took on many liberal uh, critiques. It was the insidious corporate state with its shadowy means and motives and intentions that wanted abortions, that advocated ugliness, that could accept such soul-killing solutions, such final solutions. Corporations were trying to sell lives of enemy, loneliness, lack of meaning, torpor, conformity, stepfordism, abortion. Abortion, a life without family, lives without the stability of true roles and true identities. To be precluded from calling a woman a woman was a terrible break with nature. And it was the liberals, the bureaucrats, the corporate interests, modernity itself that had broken us from our vital connection to all things nurturing and good. The Democrats and their corporate allies were making a case against having children, making a case for devoting your life to some soulless multinational corporation, making a case against fulfillment and human destiny. When I hear people say abortion is the most important right we have, I ask myself, what are they really saying? And he swallows here. I am a pro-lifer just to be completely clear because it is not necessarily clear. And then Tucker rushes on. We can debate the issue of abortion. What limits should be put on it? as though acknowledging at the very least the middle ground, otherwise anathema to most people here at this speech. But that's not the real issue. He pivots. We need to take three steps back and ask what, what they are really saying. The corporation, Citibank, Nike, Dick Sporting Goods, who will pay for women to fly out of state to get an abortion if necessary. These huge companies that are affirmatively promoting abortions are really saying it's more important to serve us than to have a family. 
you'll be happier as you rise within our company than you would be by having your own children. So I played clips from corporate, former corporate HR woman talking about the lengths that uh, businesses go to to uh, try to make sure they don't hire someone who is pregnant or is going to uh, get pregnant anytime soon. All right, uh, not much of a culture war going on in Japan, apparently. This is Chris Kavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. That's a good analogy. It almost reminds me of tripping. It's like, don't fight it. Just let it flow over you and it won't be so bad. Yeah. So, but do your Japanese, this will be my final question, but do your Japanese colleagues, do, do Japanese people follow the culture war or anything like that? Not at all. Like, uh, oh. I mean, there, there are people in Japan that would object to that, but they're a very small minority. Um, and Japan has its own cultural hangups and debates going on. And the culture around um, like guru figures and stuff here is different. There's also yeah. really, really robust laws in Japan about uh, public criticism of oh, other people, yeah. such that where you do engage in it, um, defense, uh, a defense in most other cases is that what you've said is true, like against most libel accusations. Uh, in Japan, that isn't a defense. It doesn't matter if it's true. If you publicly damage someone's reputation, uh, they can uh, sue you. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so that's not the main reason. Like the, no. you, there's also the issue about like linguistic competence to, you know, do what we would do in Japan would be very difficult, but the, all the nuance of like a Japanese style um, influencer types. But yeah, so it, actually in a sense being based here, it is like a, a, my daily life doesn't involve the culture war in any notable way. My family life doesn't involve it and, and things in Japan I are not really revolving around that, which I regard as perfectly healthy and I very much enjoy right. living in Japan. So Japan's current thing is having issue with like nuisance streamers um, oh. uh, that have been causing trouble. That's that's the their main thing. <laughs> but the conspiracy theorists and like intellectual gurus exist, um, and some of them are relatively popular. But they're the dynamics are quite different, and I, I don't think you have the exact same like segment of secular guru that you do in the West. Um, so it's uh, I'd be in, I'm I'm interested in any Japanese people that are kind of covering the same you know, from a Japanese side, but I haven't seen that much. And that could be related to the issue about like the, the legal laws here. And also like in general, the culture of cr public criticism in Japan is very muted. Not to say it doesn't exist, but like if you watch the media, the way that they treat politicians and stuff is uh, much softer than you would expect in like Europe or, or even the US. So, right. yeah. 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 I well, like it here. Well... Okay. Let me find... Conversation with Tucker Carlson. He went on the Billionaires All In podcast. These stories are like so many suspects. You know what I mean? Um, but I. He's talking here about getting fired from Fox News. I don't know. I was never told I can only speculate. There were a lot of different things going on. I had a lot of opinions that were unpopular, you know, with people who might have influenced uh, my show getting canceled. So I, I really don't know. I will say, you know, right after it happened, people said, well, how can they fire the top guy? And because that's what it is. I'm certainly not the first high rated host to get fired. It's not only about ratings. There are a lot of different factors. It's a big company you all have worked for and run big companies. And, you know, it's there's a lot of complicated stuff going on. And um, and it's never exactly clear, you know, why things happen the way they do. But I was not shocked by it. I mean, I was shocked by it in the short term since I didn't expect to have my show canceled that morning. But um, but I was not shocked at all uh, when I thought about it for a minute. I'd expected that. You know, you can't kind of give the finger to everybody um, and persist in a, in a corporate job. So, I, no hard feelings. I, and, I, and I, in fact, I said that on the call when I received the news. It's, it's not my company. And I never felt like I had a right to be on the air. I was, I was working at the pleasure of the family that runs the company who treated me very well. And, and, um, and they wanted me off. And so I was off. Did you ever have moments where somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, advertiser XYZ is getting uncomfortable or we're trying to land this new advertiser and right. they want you to shape things in one way. Did you ever feel that pressure? Is that, or is that just a thing that is kind of like a boogeyman that doesn't actually exist? Oh, it, well, it, it not only exists, it defines news coverage, especially mm. on pharma. 
you know, because Farmer's the biggest advertiser in television, as I know you know. And so for sure, I mean, if, you know, Pfizer is sponsoring your show, you're not going to question the facts. I mean, it's kind of that simple. Uh, so absolutely. And of course, that's why they're the biggest advertiser, so they can shape news coverage. I mean, that's that's the point. But um, I personally never had a single person say to me, don't say this, that I recall. I haven't thought about it too much, but that's certainly, I was there 14 years, and I, I didn't have that experience regularly or at all, really, that I can remember. And and I think, you know, my producers may have been told that, but it, it didn't ever get to me because I was always really clear, which is, I, I always said out loud to the supervisors there, you know, I work for your company. I don't own this network. All I can control is what I say. If you don't like what I say, don't have me on TV. But as long as I'm on TV, I'm going to say what I think is true. And in a million cases, I said only part of what I think, not because of my employer, but just because you shouldn't actually say everything you think. I mean, I have some crackpot views, too, or I have resentments that I didn't want to work out on the air. I mean, I did. You know, you strain yourself and you want to, as you do in your personal life. But on no question of principle did I ever pull back because I just I wouldn't do that. And again, I was just super clear. If you don't like what I'm saying, take me off the air, but I'm not going to you know, toe a line. And because I was so clear about that, I, I just think they didn't think it was worth having some kind of dispute with me and to their great credit. So I noticed, I've noticed this in my life. When I give out the energy that I can be intimidated, then people will start to intimidate me. When I get, give off the energy that it'll be very difficult and very costly for you to try to intimidate me, then far fewer people try to intimidate me. So we give out an energy, a vibe, and people receive from that vibe and they react to us accordingly. All right, we have a profound effect on how other people treat us. And so if Tucker has this clarity and put out this clarity, and I think maybe maybe accurate here, he put out this clarity that now I will not be told what I can say on my show. Therefore, the owners and management of Fox News would not try to approach him directly while if someone gave off, you know, the wounded bird vibe that they just want to fit in, then obviously people will try to intimidate them. For the time that I was there, and I said this many times in public, like I took positions on the Ukraine war, on the COVID vaccine, on the COVID lockdowns, among other issues that I think, you know, I've been vindicated on pretty conclusively on the origins of COVID. And all of those are super unpopular. On January 6th, which was so hated at the company where I worked that people, a number of people, including on-air people, four that I can think of, resigned in protest over my over me suggesting that actually it was more complicated than it looked. And there were a bunch of federal agents in the crowd. How can you say that? Are you claiming a false flag? Well, no, not, wouldn't use that phrase, but like, this is something weird going on here. Well, I've been vindicated on that. That sounds like I'm bragging. I'm not. I'm just stating factually that uh, I said things that were truly hated by a lot of the people who work there and they let me keep saying them. So it's kind of hard to complain really at this point, right? Again, it's not my company. Just from a business standpoint, I think it's weird for a company to fire their top performer and to do so without giving any notes. I mean, if any of us had a superstar executive or a superstar engineer, like a- Chip with the father and son who were directly involved in, in that company was, from my perspective, very strong. And um, I will say this about the Murdochs, they're very polite. I mean, they're, they're really kind of <laughs> very Anglo, almost elaborately polite in a way that I'm not mocking, I'm complimenting. And um, they're not confrontational, they're not nasty in the way that they deal with people directly. And, and I prefer that as sort of a way of communicating with people. So I got along with them very, very well. I always liked them and they were very nice to me, elaborately nice to me and always gave me assurances of my right to say what I thought was, was true. And so again, I can only speculate. I will say though, and you see this with Trump, especially, I don't think I'm anywhere near as divisive as Trump. Obviously I'm not as powerful as Trump. I'm not the figure Trump is. But one thing that maybe Trump and I have in common is we're really disliked by a certain set of people, you know, affluent people, highly educated people, people who work at NGOs, government finance, you know, really kind of hate a certain brand of politics. So it's not. Yeah. So I, I think Tucker is, is spot on here. You know, I disagree with a lot of things Tucker says. 
think this is an accurate perception. Being conservative, you can be conservative in the sort of, you know, I work at Cato or Heritage, or I, you know, we need to get back to free trade or whatever, that kind of thing, the Reaganite foreign policy, that's all fine. But if you start asking questions like, well, why doesn't our country act in its own interest? There's something about that that's uniquely offensive to them, to that whole class of people. Now, I could not have more contempt or loathing for those people, having grown up among them. I know how repulsive they are. So, you know, their, their <laughs> hatred of me, is, I wear as a badge of honor, it actually makes me happy. But it's hard to take. I would say, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just speculating in my specific case, but I know more broadly, like, it's very hard to have lunch at the Four Seasons in Jackson during the winter because there's some private equity wife who's going to scream at you on your way to the men's room because that world hates you. And so if you live in that world and you're employing someone like me, you know, it, you hear about it. I guess that's my point. You hear about it. Like, what? That guy's a Nazi. <laughs> you know, like, who wants to deal with that? I want to actually pull this thread. I would love your perspective on the state of American society, just less on the political spectrum of Republican right. versus Democrat. Yes. But just it's even worse than that. Our politics and not just our politics, but our public. Con and we were talking about how obviously this is not a democracy. It's not even a, a sort of decent. Look, we have elements of democracy. We have elements of autocracy. We you know, have elements of oligopoly, right? No, no nation is purely a democracy or purely a dictatorship or purely an oligopoly, right? Nation states are complicated. Uh, facsimile of a democracy, it's, to call it a democracy is like, ridiculous, actually. But it's even worse than that. Our politics, and not just our politics, but our public conversation, reflects the very specific and parochial concerns of a tiny, tiny group of people, which is middle-aged, affluent women who tend to be very angry and tend to, um, mostly with their husbands, but probably for other reasons too, and exercise this like wildly disproportionate power over what we can talk about and think about and, and the rules that the rest of us live by. It's just kind of amazing. And he happens to live in Jackson, Wyoming. So, and I go there, you know, to ski and to fish. And I have for a very long time. And I always say to him, I can't go anymore because I get yelled at at lunch over my elk chili or in the lift line or whatever, or at the you know, West Side Market. Literally, a, a relative of mine yelled at me while buying bananas in the, you know, in the West Side Market. She lives there. And I'm thinking, what is it about this group of people that hates me so much when, again, I know them really well. I'm related in some cases to them. So, I, and I'm not quite sure, but I just, I, I see our politics and our concerns, which if you take three steps back are like insanely picky -yoon. Like, why is Tucker hated? Well, he says a lot of things that are just obviously wrong and irresponsible. His anti-vax stance, he doesn't have a, a strong fidelity to, to facts. He's interesting, but he doesn't optimize for truth, right? He optimizes for being interesting and compelling. So in that way, he's a lot like uh, Richard Spencer. Sense. The only reason is if you have a lot of debt. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Right. If, well, you, right. if, you, right. if you didn't have all the debt, you don't care about it. You shouldn't care about economic growth rate with respect to the measure of prosperity. The strange thing now is well, I, I've also, had you know, if the pie isn't getting bigger and people aren't doing better, then that does sow the seeds for a revolution. I mean, yeah. so I, I'm someone who's down with technological innovation, right? I, I think it's great. You can have all sorts of technological innovation, but still hold on to traditions in the way you construct your own life. So. I'm not for restricting AI. I'm not for restricting technological advances. Yeah. All this divisiveness will start to explode if people don't feel like their circumstances are getting better off. This is where, I mean, in this, in this one limited way, I guess I'd be in favor of rapid change, which is the technological area. I mean, I'm against revolutionary politics. I'm against that kind of revolutionary change because it almost never works out. But I do think that revolutionary change in the narrow category of technology is ultimately good for us. I know it creates challenges. I know it creates disruption. People do lose their jobs and have to find new ones. But it is the basis for American prosperity and the basis for our economy being productive and America having a powerful military and all those things. So I don't know if this is a difference between us, Tucker, but I do think that 
in this area of technological change, I'm not sort of a dispositional conservative. I mean, this is kind of like like Peter Thiel, right? I don't want us to slow down. Actually, I want us to be successful. And, and it feels like actually it's the people on the left who are generally in this camp of wanting to slow us down and mire us in regulations and make it harder to um, make progress technologically uh, because it's something they don't control. I, I agree with that. I just, I guess the net result is what I care about. I think it's, if you talk to old people, which I, now that I'm getting older and I've talked to, you know, older relatives and stuff, like what, what bothers you? And I used to think it was, you know, taking a leak six times a night, but it's really not. The thing that bothers old people I've spoken to anyway is the change. It's like they don't just don't recognize. Man, I, I'm envious of old people who only have to take a leak six times a night. It sure feels like it's a dozen times a night for me. And that's really hard for people to deal with. And so all I'm saying, I'm certainly not calling for a halt to technological progress. That would be terrible. All I'm saying is, in tandem with those advancements should be the concern about people's ability to digest massive change. And like, let's keep some things the same. You know, you just can't change everything. It's like bad, it's super- Well, the more homogeneous a society, all right, the more likely people will have bonds and community, and therefore the more flexible they will be and more resilient at adopting to technological change. But in an isolated society, then people will struggle. So. If you're connected to others, you can ask them for help with adapting to a new change. Like if you belong to a church, a synagogue, a chess club, a soccer club, or you go regularly to a sports bar, right? And you're bewildered by some change in the world around you, you, you should be able to find help. But if you're not connected, then technological change and other change will be much more daunting. We're bad. So like, maybe we get AI, but let's keep Halloween. <laughs> yeah, you're arguing for tradition and things that bring, bring people together. Yeah. This country was built off of uh, immigrants, obviously. And uh, chat says, bro, sounds like you need a cranberry extract. I take cranberry extract in the morning. It's, it's fantastic. But uh, my, my getting up is more a symptom of when I have trouble sleeping. So when I'm sleeping well, you know, I can sleep for hours and then wake up with that, that, that wonderful full bladder feeling. All right, uh, Nick Fuentes, Richard Spencer... We're talking to each other for the first time in years, and uh, they're united, right? They both optimize for attention. They both optimize for being interesting. So a bit, a bit, a little bit like uh, Tucker Carlson in that respect. These guys don't optimize for truth. Let me play some really excerpts. Critical of Trump, and and also kind of analytical. I I almost just see him as like a phenomenon at this mm -hmm. point, and, and and it's one that I'm I'm distanced from in many ways. But I I do think that. You're you were right to say that you got red pilled by Trump. Like it, it was, despite all the bombacity and stupidity and you know grabbing by the pussy, all the all that stuff, there was something unique. He incarnated some power or or or, or force or emotion, unlike anyone else. And I think he continues to do that. And I think actually that's why he's going to win because he, despite it all. I mean, I don't even need to go into the level of stupidity of Donald Trump, you know, speeches and, and a lot of the movement and things like this. But it's just even despite it all, he's power. I mean, what, what I was thinking as well, um, and I was talking about this a little bit the last time, it's like the deep state or liberals, they're all very concerned. They're very. So I try to optimize the truth. So frequently the truth is mundane. The truth is not exciting. All right. That's why Richard and Nick and. So many other live streamers have and pundits have many exciting perspectives because they're not optimizing for truth. When you, 
you're not living in a straitjacket of a dedication to truth. It's a lot easier to be exciting. I also try to optimize for what's more likely to have a positive effect on society and on individuals who might hear what I'm, I'm saying. When you don't have that constraint of, uh, of decency or, or goodness or righteousness, right? Again, a lot easier to be exciting. Very concerned about the loss of democracy, you know, what, whatever that means exactly. And the loss of decorum and, 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 and so on and so forth. And so they're going to use what they think are, are powerful and definitive means. Like they're going to use the legal system to attack Trump. And so we're going to get them on, oh my God, you know, money to a porn star, you know, you, you look like some crazy old man with a bunch of documents in your bathroom. I mean, you know, they're going to get them on these things, you know, justified and, and, and unjustified. Um, they're going to they're gonna get them on the legal system. But so when, when Trump started getting prosecuted and when the mainstream media consensus was that Trump is finished, then Richard suddenly changed his, his line on Trump. So after, what, four years of just nonstop criticism, five years of nonstop criticism of Trump, then suddenly Richard turns around and he has the edgy take that uh, Trump can't be defeated by these legal procedures. The thing is, it, it just doesn't matter. Trump's DeSantis started collapsing in the polls the moment Donald Trump got indicted, which meant that all of those people who were kind of like, well, let's let's. I think uh, DeSantis, I don't think he was ever particularly strong in the polls, but I don't think it's so much Trump getting indicted. I think it's that the more people get to know Ron DeSantis, they just don't care for him. Let's look around, you know, maybe, maybe we can find someone else. They just, they, they, they went back to Trump. They circled the wagons. Now he's running away with it because it's like the power of the legal system and bureaucracy and mechanisms and advertising and corporations, all, all of these like instruments, but they're, they're, they're neutral. They're, they're just, like the legal system is just this kind of like, you know what I mean? It, it, it's it's a, uh, a technical way of attacking someone. Trump is not technical. Trump incarnates some energy maybe it's horrible at some level maybe it's maybe it's wonderful in some way or, or at least understandable maybe it's anger and resentment maybe it's actually hope on some other level as well whatever it is it's like the force of belief versus the force of a technical deep state a, a robot effectively and the belief wins you know he like he's going to just because they're 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 not confronting him mano a mano they're not going to defeat him politically and they're not going to offer a competing vision like this is our vision of the world socialism or or whatever they don't offer anything they're simply concerned about democracy and he's 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 just despite all of his failings he's just this power of belief and emotion that is just going to steamroll them that's at least how I see it. I did not even think I would be saying this not too long ago, but I think he's going to win, and uh, I think it's going to bring upon a political crisis, actually. But but I'll just start with that. I think he's going to win. Okay, let's play a few more excerpts from this conversation between Richard Spencer and Nick Fuentes. Yeah, yeah. wow. Beast mode, straight up. It was awesome. And I, and I was just <laughs> like, this is awesome. You know, This is awesome. So Nick is talking about his dinner with Donald Trump and Donald Trump going to beast mode. So did you so, tell, did you do what Trump said? Did you actually tell Ye that he can't win? No, I totally, I mean, look, cause you got to imagine, I mean, these are both of my, I love both of these people. These are both right. of my personal heroes, right? They both like me. I just got to know them. So I just didn't even say anything. I was just like, please don't make me say, I was like, well, I don't know, you know, yeah. cause I'm like, who do I? Because Nick doesn't optimize for truth. So he doesn't want to say the truth that uh, Kanye West can't win the presidency of the United States because uh, Kanye is a, a valuable asset to his life. I, I couldn't say anything to Ye because Ye brought me there. Yeah, sure. It'd be very disloyal for me to be there. And, you know, so I, I'm trying to be Ye's wingman, but also it's like, 
this is like my father's like Darth Vader saying, mm -hmm. you know, Hey, do this. But so I just kind of, I was like, yeah, well, I, don't, I don't know, you know, um, did, did you think that the Trump movement was kind of over like that announcement speech, which I guess took place around a year ago or so, um, was just terrible. Um, I, I actually remember people pointing out Spencer and Flint has had the same opinion. It was just like no energy. He's just a typical Republican now. What's the point? I mean, did you did you think that Trump was over and that's and you thought that if if there were going to were to be a, a vessel for this dark energy, it might be Kanye West? Well, you know, it's um, here's the thing. I, I sort of knew from the outset, like a lot of people did, that um, EA had ran before, you know, he ran yeah. before and they didn't even get on the ballot in most states. Yeah. And um, so I recognized that it was sort of a long shot, you know, that he would win the nomination to become. But I did think it was possible. And we were we were seriously putting together a serious campaign that would win. And I I honestly I believe that he could win in the future. I think that if he mm -hmm. ran. Into I mean, how delusional is this? Nick Fuentes think that he and Kanye West was putting together a serious campaign that could win the presidency of the United States. 28 or some other time, because. Ye has the same intuition that Trump does. And I know that, you know, a lot of people sort of roll their eyes at that. They say, oh, really? You think this rapper's a genius? I do. I think that, you know, any serious person has to look at his legacy, which is that he has been at the top of the music industry for 20 years. Who else does that? Yeah, Who yeah. else puts out an album, 10, 11 albums, and they go number one? And he's, he's the biggest streaming artist, top five, and he didn't put out an album last year. Not only that. Okay, that doesn't show he's a genius. It shows that he's good at putting out albums that sell. Just because you put out albums that sell doesn't mean you're going to win as a politician or that you're a genius in any other area. Right. Tom Brady won, what, six Super Bowls. That doesn't mean he'll necessarily make a great businessman or a great politician. Go into any mall and you will see shoes influenced by the Yeezy. What, what other musician does both or one of mm -hmm. them? There are very few and far between that has that kind of cultural influence and staying power and dominance. So there is he is a genius. I really believe that. And I know that because he knew things about politics, even without knowing much about politics, that most people would never understand in a lifetime. Most most political junkies, if it slapped them across their screen. So notice he can't actually name any of these amazing genius things that uh, Ye understands about politics or that he can do with politics. All right. Uh, I mean, having, having some role in designing a shoe or some clothes or releasing music that sells is doesn't make you any more likely to have profound insights into politics, culture, or religion, right? It just means that you have, have a common touch. Stupid fat fucking face. They wouldn't get it, you know, cause he just has some wisdom. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, the, the big idea I thought is that maybe that would snap Trump out of it. I thought that what Trump needed at that time was an opponent because what had happened is that Trump, that's what, you know, what had happened was, but what happened was Trump, I think became complacent. And I think that he was low energy and the speech sucked. He needed a foil. He needed Yeah, this idea that Kanye West snapped Trump out of a funk is absurd. It was the indictments that snapped Trump out of a funk. He did a dialectic. In 16, yeah. the dialectic was him versus everyone else, and that made him what he was. What he, he sort of became this Flanders, Flanderized character, and he had been captured and assimilated into the RNC. And, and yeah, I thought it was basically doomed. I thought even if he wins, it's not going to be worth it. I, I was looking forward to DeSantis announcing, and I actually commended him for attacking DeSantis. At the dinner, I said, look, I said, when you called him to Sanctimonious, not only were you in the right, but also I said, 
this is what got you elected. People aren't here for McDaniel and McCarthy and, and all that. I said, they're yeah, here yeah. for you. And, you know, I said, the moment that was awesome is when you raised your hand at the first debate and said, you'd run as an independent. I said, because that's the kind of deal making that we need at the table, not not the sort of we'll get them next time, live to fight another oh, yeah. day, bullshit Republicans do and lose every year. And anyway, so when I sort of jumped on the A bandwagon and, and he and Ye agreed too. me and Ye both love Trump. Ye loves Trump. He's his hero. And he thinks he's an incredible politician. And Ye said that, you know, either Trump would be his running mate or he'd be Trump's running mate. And even if he didn't. Okay, uh, comment in the chat that I hear a lot. Aslan Sultan Bekov says, I usually do not associate with Americans. They are too uneducated and stupid. Well, the reason I think that uh, Americans are regarded as particularly uneducated and stupid is that low working class Americans can still often afford to travel overseas. So for decades, the only Europeans you would generally meet in the United States were upper-class Europeans because they were the only ones who could afford to travel. But uh, working-class Americans have been able to, frequently been able to afford to travel overseas since, you know, at least after World War II. America's been the richest country in the world since about the 1880s. So people overseas, they think Americans are stupid and uneducated because even stupid, uneducated people in America can afford to travel overseas. Well, generally speaking... Stupid, uneducated people in other countries have not been able to afford to travel overseas, travel to America. So Americans, because of this structure, have associated Europeans with greater levels of intelligence, sophistication, and education than they really possess. And people in other countries have associated Americans much more with stupidity and boorishness than is is really fair. Because even boorish, stupid, poor uneducated Americans can afford to travel to Italy, to England, to France and Germany and Holland and Scandinavian countries, right? And until recent decades, right, poor, boorish, uneducated Europeans and Asians could not afford to travel to America. When he would endorse Trump. And I sort of have the same idea that if, you know, ideally, honestly, Ye would win, and then we would have this president that loves Hitler. On the contrary, you know, worst case scenario, he drops out and endorses Trump after he brings the, the beast back out of Trump. And so, right. uh, but people didn't understand that. They said, well, you're disloyal to Trump or whatever. And it's like, no, that just like with Andrew Yang, this is something that is that is going to throw a wrench into this totally stagnant sort of system and, and maybe produce a better outcome. That, that's that's I, I actually understood it. it it's, it's funny because I... I was so used to being against everything that the right did out of my, you know, contrarian mm-hmm. instinct, or I, I was just fed up with MAGA and all that kind of stuff. But I kind of, you know, and I didn't, I didn't join it exactly, but I definitely showed a lot of respect because I was like, he's, he, you know, he's going on stage in a mask and he's, he's doing all this crazy shit, but that's like great because that's mm-hmm. what you know. Why does Richard Spencer uh, support Kanye West's mental breakdown? that uh, became evident with his commentary that he, how much he loves all these things about Hitler and that he's going to go DEFCON 4 on the Jews. And Kanye West blew up his life, uh, cost himself hundreds of millions of dollars. Why does Richard Spencer think that's great? Well, in addition to, you know, Richard and Ye share a similar distaste for Jews, but Richard Spencer is fundamentally a theater director. He is fundamentally a the- theatrical performer. And so he appreciated the theatrical element of Kanye, and then he 
sees Kanye's performance through that theatrical lens, while someone who's say more attuned to mental health would see Kanye's performance much more through the lens of, of mental health. But uh, that's why Richard Spencer loved Kanye's outbursts because they were just so theatrical and compelling. In reality, you know, Kanye's outbursts were sad, self-destructive, you know, really bad for him. And so many people who had come to this channel and regulars on this channel thought that, you know, Ye was leading the second coming of Jesus Christ. They were so incredibly excited about what Ye, Ye was doing. Uh, it's it was completely a delusion. They were watching someone's you know mental breakdown, and and thinking that this was going to save Western civilization. And you become much more vulnerable to that delusional thinking when you don't optimize for truth, and you don't optimize for decency and and goodness. But instead, you optimize for that which is exciting, theatrical and compelling. Right, most things that are exciting, theatrical and compelling are not good for you, and are not true. You need, you need to be fucking crazy. You need to, like, call up that the dark energy. You need to go there in order to be relevant, because otherwise you're... No, you don't need to. <laughs> you don't need to go to the dark side to be relevant. You don't need to be crazy to be relevant. You don't need to be bizarre to capture attention. Instead, you could just you know, produce a, a solid body of work that makes a contribution to the world. All right, Richard Spencer's produced a very thin body of intellectual work, right? You know, very few essays, very few books, right? Very little intellectual substance. But he has mastered the art of live streaming and being compelling. But you don't have to be bizarre, self-destructive, mad, crazy, attention-seeking, right, to contribute something to the world. In fact, you're more likely to contribute something if you do none of those things. But uh, Richard's still the the you know, perennial theater student still primarily sees the world in theatrical terms, not in terms of, of goodness and decency. It's, it's not, it's, it's not like you, you want to calculate into a little of this or that. No, you need to go full dark side in order to win because otherwise you're going to lose. And so I did see that with Ye. I surprised myself. I'm not a fan of his music. You're, you're long, you know, that, I, we have different, differing music tastes to say the least, but, <laughs> but, but, but I, I just saw it and, and it, it was, it was just, it was calling up something really authentic and real. And I just, I just loved it because that's, that's what we need. We don't, this America, America is going down the fucking tubes. America sucks. I mean, our culture is horrible. Everyone's unhappy. Yeah. It's just the most powerful country in the world and is on a trajectory to just be increasingly powerful in the years ahead. Uh, America is filled with, you know, opportunity. You can create a great life in America. You can get married. You can have kids. You can go to church. You can go to synagogue. You can, uh, volunteer, right? You can build up your community. You can start a neighborhood watch, right? You can find cures for diabetes and certain forms of cancer. I mean, America has untold amounts of opportunity. And this idea that, you know, America sucks and America is going downhill, right? That has no correlation with reality. But Richard Spencer is not seeing America as America is. Richard Spencer is seeing America as Richard is. Right? Richard's afraid that he's going downhill. Right? Richard's afraid that he sucks. And he projects that onto America. Everything's way too expensive. Like, we're looking for a savior. Everyone wants that. And again, the left... Okay, that's bizarre. The idea that everyone's looking for a savior. 99% of people are not that interested in politics. 
I would say the percentage of people of Americans who are looking for a savior is well under 10%. If you're any kind of normal Christian in, in America, your savior is Jesus of Nazareth, right? If you're any kind of normal observant Jew, you know, your, your salvation comes through the Torah. If you're, you're a devotee of your profession, in all likelihood, you derive, you know, a great deal of your meaning in life from your profession and from your family and from your friends. I mean, what percentage of Americans seriously are yearning for a savior? I'd say well under 10%, probably under 5%. Like, throw it down in the chat. What percentage of Americans do you think are yearning for a savior to solve our problems? I think only highly immature, theatrical people are yearning for some kind of, you know, theatrical revelation that will solve their problems. But there will be no theatrical revelation that solves America's problems or our problems, social problems, economic problems, right? There's no the theatrical revelation that's, uh, that's at hand. I'm thinking about that, uh, that, that poem by William Butler Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dim tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. When a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight, somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with the lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast is our come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Right, Very exciting, but not very practical or realistic analysis about what's going on in the world just refuses to present it you know like i'll i'll, I'll defend biden to, to some degree i i think he's a decent guy his presidency up until the israel stuff i thought was was decent actually i'm glad we got out of afghanistan you know child tax credit whatever the fuck you know it's good um but again he's he doesn't represent anything as you as you were saying he's just this old guy fake kind of sort of managing a system that's beyond his control and I, I think we're we're in a, we're in an age of anxiety in where you know in, in the 2020s and and I think beyond I think we're in an age where we're in a kind of post-religious post-Christian. You know who's anxious? All right, is people who aren't securely attached, people who aren't connected, people who don't have a family, don't have a profession, people who don't have purpose and meaning in life, people who aren't out there volunteering. All right, uh, America as a whole is not being destroyed by anxiety. But the most marginalized Americans are filled with anxiety for good reason, because if you're living life on the margins, right, your, the quality of your life is not going to be very good, and the length of your life is not going to be very long. Right? Life on the mass margins tends to be nasty, brutish, and short. Thank God most Americans are not living on the margins age, but not in the sense that everyone's becoming atheist. I, I think in the sense that everyone is looking for a savior. I just think that's very true. And if you can't offer that, if all you offer is we are going to not appoint a conservative Supreme Court justice, or we're going to protect democracy, whatever the fuck that means at this point in time, 
it, you're just going to get bulldozed by something where it's the power of belief. I mean, I do think that Trump will probably disappoint you, but he car- he carries that messianic energy with him. And that that is something that's very real. That's something that people need in this day and age. And so I, I have a undying respect for people who are willing to carry that energy forward. You know, on a less, yeah. uh, a less profound note, uh, some people say that comedy is dead, and I think that there's great evidence for that. SNL hasn't been funny for 20 years. Oh, but yeah. That appearance with you and uh, Ye on Alex Jones was the funniest fucking thing I've seen. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah, it was just hilarious, man. Um, so I enjoyed that. I appreciate it. So if nothing else, that was just a, an epic moment of comedy uh, that I don't think that can be replicated or repeated. Yeah, uh, I like when Alex Jones so was like strange and like perfect. we know that Hitler is truly a a, a, a puppet <laughs> of of the uh, lizard people, but uh, we don't like Hitler. And then yeah. Kanye just called him on it. He was like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I like Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> well, the best part he goes, no. uh, he goes. So you like the uniforms? No, no. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> like right. A lot of things. <laughs> which is so like that's such a perfect sense. No, there's a lot of things I like about Hitler. Which is yeah, so, yeah, and they sort of out Alex Jones, Alex Jones. Um, well, yeah, and I agree with you. And this is one of the reasons why we're, I mean, we come from very different places. You're, you're the Nietzschean and you're, I know, not a Christian by any stretch and all, and all that. Um, but I think one of the reasons why maybe there's a mutual respect is because I think we both have a contempt for the ordinary and for the, yeah. especially for like the stodgy conservative. Cause I feel like that's one. Wait, wait, what, what, what mutual respect between. <laughs> Uh, Richard Spencer and Nick Fuentes. I mean, these guys have more often than not absolutely loathed each other. Uh, so, this is this is a highly delusional conversation, right? At this moment, they are conjuring up some mutual respect. It's not very deep, and I suspect it's not long lasting. One of the worst things that happened to Trumpism is that when Trump came out in sixteen, he was a billionaire celebrity with a gold tower and from New York. And now it's become just as campy and cringe and lame as, as the old Republican Party. You get these people mm-hmm. that go there and they're like, you know, I like Trump. You know, I'm, I'm on the Trump train. It's like, you know, so this is we're just doing that all over again. We're just doing Reagan again and, and all that crap. And so a big part of why I like, yeah, is like you say, he's well, he's cool. He's cool. He's different. He's forward thinking. You know, people may not get it. People may not like it, but it's different. It's it's forward. It's radical. He's not. I mean, he's a. I I agree here with Nick. He finds Kanye cool, and Nick optimizes far more for cool than for truth. Both Richard and Nick optimize far more for what is cool, what is exciting, what is theatrical, rather than for what is true and what is good and what is deep, what is profound. True rock star. Like, he's not a pussy at yeah. all. He'll go on there and, you know, every other... Can- he's not a pussy? He he makes some outrageous statements for about a week or two, and then he completely you know drops out of the conversation, just runs away. Bravely, bravely, bravely runs away. I mean, brave, <laughs> brave Sir Sir Kanye, bravely, bravely bold Sir Kanye, rode forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die. Oh, brave. Sir Yay, he was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Brave, 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 Sir Yay. He was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp or to have his eyes gouged out or his elbows broken, to have his kneecaps split and his body burned away and his limbs all hacked and mangled. Brave, brave, Sir Yay. His head smashed in, his head cut out, his liver removed, and his balls unplugged, and his nostrils raped, and his bottom burned off, and his penis. 
Brave, brave, brave. Yay. Conservative will say, oh, let's check in on the magic Americans, you know, and then, you know, yay, who's a billionaire celebrity with everything to lose will come out and say, DEFCON 3 on the Jews. I love Hitler for many reasons and all mm-hmm. that. And, uh, and I'm with you. I look at those figures and, and, I, and I'm with you on the power of true belief. There's nothing more powerful than true belief. And, you know, people that can harness that, I want to be a lieutenant. I want it to rub off on me. I want- you know what's more powerful than true belief? Uh, being connected and effectively navigating reality, right? <laughs> That's more powerful than true belief, right? Being in touch with reality want to be a part of that other people do you know they're like um, how exactly is that going to win you know how are people and they want to vote for DeSantis exactly. because exactly. they're like you know let, let's calculate the optimal candidate using the Nate Silver algorithm like fuck you you don't like you don't get it yeah Ron DeSantis shows that he can govern right Donald Trump has never shown he's any good at running things right Ron DeSantis is very effective at running things very accomplished governor right I, I think Ron DeSantis would be a far more effective president than uh, Donald Trump or any of the Republican nominees. But uh, uh, Nick Fuentes and Richard Spencer have contempt for effectiveness. Right? They have contempt for expertise you know, outside of their own. Now, Ron DeSantis is just very effective at the boring old task of governing. He knows where to push the buttons to get things done. That's just not exciting, not theatrical enough for Richard and Nick. It's a, a, total, a 100% agreement on that, yes. So okay, so what happened? What 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 happened? What because it, it, it kind of went out with a whimper and not a bang. The the A campaign. Yeah. What what happened? Did he lose his nerve? Did he? Did, was it just impossible to raise money, or what what happened? <clears throat> well, it was um, it was honestly a series. So Rupert Murdoch, when he went into the U.S. news media, he, he was told you can't have all the Jews opposing you. And so Rupert Murdoch uh, started the Weekly Standard. He subsidized the Weekly Standard as a magazine for neoconservatives, and he kept some of the Jews on side. Donald Trump's deliberately kept some of the Jews on side. Right? It's very difficult to get anything done in America if you got 90% plus of you know, Jewish, Jewish power, Jewish influence, uh, Jews in elite positions opposed to you. And uh, yay, right? <laughs> and, and Nick Fuentes, they, they managed to summon up, you know, the opposition of probably uh, 99% of Jewish elites. And that may feel very exciting, but you simply can't get anything done in the face of that opposition. So if you want to push something forward in the world, you have to consider how much is what I'm saying and doing going to fire up my enemies versus how much is it going to fire up my base and uh, yay, and Nick, you know, fired up their enemies far more than they fired up their base, and yay was destroyed. Is a thing. So the timeline, at least with my involvement, is I got out there on November seventeenth. This is after the DefCon tweet and the Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. thing. So I got out there November seventeenth. The dinner was on the twenty second. Tim Pool was one year ago today, so November twenty ninth, mm-hmm. and um, the Alex Jones thing I think was a week after. So. By the time of the Alex Jones, so after Alex Jones, he got banned on Twitter. He did the Alex Jones thing, and there was this sort of like this, um, I don't want to use this word, maybe it's this insensitive, but there was sort of this like, re- he was really feeling himself. Very, I almost want to say manic, but I, you know, mm-hmm. I know he wouldn't like that word. But so like we do the Alex Jones thing, and he loved it, and we jump on the- Right, Nick doesn't want to say the word manic because, yeah, he wouldn't like that word. So- Nick is not optimizing for truth. He's not going to say things that are going to cost him, you know, his valued connections. 
jet. We fly to Miami and we meet with this guy and then we're driving a hundred miles an hour in a Tesla down from, actually it was in Boca. We drove from Boca to Miami and he's blasting his songs. You know, why does it, this fucking thing go louder? We're, we're blasting, kick us up. You know, I'm telling him songs. He's making videos and posting them. And then he posted the swastika and then he got banned. And, you know, so after that, it became really difficult because basically the reality began to set in. And, you know, the thing that... So people like Nick and Richard and Yay, they're not primarily interested in winning. They're primarily interested in having some visceral emotional experience where they have, you know, a grandiose conception of their own capability. So for Yay, it was never about winning. He never really had a chance at winning. He just wanted to feel something. Right? He, he wasn't optimizing for, for either truth or effectiveness. What I love about Ye, which he's truly able to do, and most people are not able to do this, is he has a sort of like unrealistic opinion of the world. You know, we, he'd mm -hmm. be like, well, we want to run the campaign and not take donations. We want to run the campaign and do no social media. Kind of like this magical thinking, which you need to be creative in any yeah. pursuit. Um, but at the same time, you know, reality has a way of reasserting itself. And so there, there is a fine line with these sort of imaginative, unrealistic, magical thinking, but also then it does tend to crash on the rocks of reality. And that is sort of what happened because his money was tied up. He couldn't find any lawyer to represent him because of what happened. I mean, literally wow. couldn't find a single lawyer. And so the money was running out, had no representation, had no social media, like, it was it was really bad. He was in the maximum pressure, maximum sanction situation, um, and it just kind of became difficult to move on. Like the we couldn't work out of the office anymore, and he had fired the entire team except. I mean, he literally fired everybody except for me. And uh, like I said, no lawyer, running out of money, and um, and then he got married. Then he got married uh, because the girl, you know, in that song, he says uh, he released a song after the Alex Jones thing, and he actually couldn't even publish it. The, the Donny Hathaway estate, he sampled the Donny Hathaway song after the Alex Jones interview, and the Donny Hathaway estate wouldn't clear the song. They wouldn't publish it on the streaming services because of what happened on Alex Jones. So he yeah. couldn't even put out a song. And See, we're not primarily individuals, all right? We're primarily part of a tribe or a nation or some kind of extended family. And if you get everyone you know, against you, everyone who has power and influence, you're not going to be able to get anything done. And uh, people often overestimate their capacity for, for bravery. They're all brave until they start feeling the effects of social opprobrium. And then their bravery, you know, may last a few hours, possibly a few days during a manic high, but then 99% of people crumble really quickly. Yay, crumbled. He, he ran away. All right. He had delusions that were smashed by reality. And I mean, the, the idea that Ye ever had a chance to become president of the United States is completely absurd. And anyway, in the song, he said, uh, wake up to an I can't do this anymore text. After the Alex Jones thing, his girl texted him and said, I can't do this anymore. And he had to win her back and everything. And anyway, they got married. Yeah, she's Australian. Right. And uh, not many women are going to want to connect with you if you are facing social opprobrium. I mean, I read there are times in my life experienced considerable social opprobrium. And women would just flee from me. I mean, even women that I was having regular sex with would flee from me. Married. And basically, after he got married, I didn't see him again for a long time, for a couple months. And, um, and by January, he was telling me, you know, I, I think actually maybe we'll just do a change of plans, run for a different office, run another time. Now, me, hmm. I, tr I was in a position where I was sort of the last man standing. I was the only guy left on the political
So it's very tempting to think of ourselves as individuals who are, you know, autonomous and strategic and using our reason to navigate our way through life. But almost all our ideas, all right, we're borrowing from some outside source. Maybe we're reassembling them in some small way. All right. We all depend upon other people. All right. We all need, you know, connection and community as our primary source of energy. Right. It's very difficult to you know, have the, the strength to carry on in the face of overwhelming social opprobrium. So I don't look at people primarily as individuals. I look at them primarily as part of a group, part of a tribe, part of a nation, part of an extended family. I just think that's much more effective at understanding how, how the world works. Right? We live in a highly individualist society in the United States, and so we you know, overestimate the power of the individual. All right, uh, San Francisco, you're on the air. I'm listening. Elliot Blatt, welcome. Welcome, bro. Okay, Elliot Blatt, come on, man. Come on, man. Got Elliot Blatt here, and uh, we'll, we'll try to get him, uh, get him talking. Team, I said, I, I have some resources at my disposal, and I have, you know, Rolodex here, and I have the connection with him. I said, I'm going to move heaven and earth, if possible, to make it happen. And that mm -hmm. way I have no regrets. That way I can't look back and say, if only I tried harder, you know, yay, could have been the president. So I really did try to make it happen. But, you know, you get it. Uh, they put maximum pressure and it's difficult to move. And any, you can't move like you can when you're not canceled. And um, so, I mean, I, I put some meetings together. We interviewed Kim. Yeah, that's because we live in a society, right? You can't go up against all the, the basic norms of society and then expect to move freely and effectively pain managers and we built a website and everything um and I, I saw him again once or twice after uh in this year in 2023 and then uh in may he left the country and that was that i mean we had some even in april and may we were working on a website and it was going really well milo jumped back in and fucked up a lot it caused like just a lot of drama and then mm. Yay left the country and then that was that you know what's really funny though is um so me and Milo, we got into it over the uh, in the group text, you know, because Milo got fired in like December and I basically caused that. And, you know, Milo found out because I bragged about it and he lost his mind. He came back for a vengeance and he tried to force me out, but Ye didn't want that. And so me and Milo got in this biblical fight on the group text and, yeah, and me and him are going back and forth, you know, just ripping each other a new asshole. In mm -hmm. front of in front of Ye and the CEO of Yeezy and Bianca and like the whole the whole oh, crew, wow. the whole fucking company, me and him are going out of the group text. And by the end of it, Ye, after like three hours after the dust settles, he goes, Thank you both. That was very entertaining. And he goes around <laughs> and says he wanted to do a reality show with like me and Milo and the crew. So well, that would be something. Be, and he's like Trump in that regard. He likes when people fight it out. He likes to play people yeah. against each other and you know, get that kind of court entry. Anyway, so that was a fun little tidbit. Yeah, uh, that's what happened. So I, I presume Milo, that's any sort of bridge has been burnt. To so both uh, Richard and Nick tend to look at people as you know either good or evil, and I, I like to think I, I rarely do this. I just try to understand how people operate and recognize that different people have have different gifts. I mean, Milo has his gifts, uh, Richard has his gifts, Nick Nick has his gifts, and they also have their demerits smithereens i would i would imagine at this point me and milo yeah yeah hopefully yeah. okay well what, what do you i don't even know if i want to talk about milo to be honest maybe i'll just maybe there are other better things to talk about 
he's just a really evil sociopath in my San house. Francisco, an you're on the air. Okay, how about now? Beautiful, beautiful, bro. Oh, beautiful. Right. You know, uh, I've got these Beats headphones, you know? They're like, they're expensive. And they've lasted me maybe six months, you know? I'm furious yes. right now, bro. <sighs> That's life on the margins, bro. Greetings from the margins. Yeah, but the, the the Beats headphones and their their imperfections, that's not the real source of your fury. That's just transference and projection, bro. Yeah. Yeah, clearly, clearly. <laughs> hey, listen, did you I don't know if you uh did you listen to this entire interview, but there's a great second in this interview. This uh Nick Richard interview <laughs> where uh Chuck Johnson just kind of butts in. I, 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 I vaguely remember that, but I didn't, I didn't make a, a timeline out of it. Yeah. Oh, I just thought it was the funniest moment ever because he kind of like butts in and just starts talking about his favorite shtick, which is, you know, spies and informants and paid actors and all these types of things. Yeah. And it was just like, it was met by like, it's just stunning, chilling silence. <laughs> they just moved on as if nothing happened. It was hysterical. Uh, so, you know, this is one of the uh, perks you get if you subscribe for $9 a month to the Richard Spencer show. Uh, so anyway, uh, not to derail, um, but we need to talk about dipping. You know what dipping is? No, I do not. <laughs> dipping is sort of the street slang for, you know, Breaking into real, you know, robbing retail stores blind or smashing windshields uh, to, you know, steal stuff and then go sell it on the street. That's bipping. Oh, okay. Is an actual term for it. And uh, Ann Coulter uh, put it on her Substack, and she basically saw that and declared that America was dead. America's over. That <laughs> there's no. <laughs> There's no, there's no effort to stop this. Uh, and she thinks that uh, there's just no fixing America. I know. So anyway, uh, but well, it's very, you should, you should watch this video. It's really, actually, it is incredibly depressing to watch. Well, uh, I'll say something, uh, Elliot. I mean, try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Around here, we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't try that in a small town. Yeah, so he came and went pretty quickly. Um, anyway, well done, well played. Uh, so last night, I don't know if you heard, so um, so there's this uh, Twitter space that I sort of get recommended all the time and I listen to often, uh, sort of at night, you know, sort of background listening. And Richard's a very frequent guest on this. And... Uh, and these guys will sit and stream, you know, and chit chat for like four, five, six hours at a stretch. It's, it's really unbelievable to me that people have that kind of stamina uh, to, just to chat with folks on the Internet. I don't know. But anyway, there's this woman, uh, Amy Therese. You know who she is? No. Okay. She's an Australian chatsburg, Twittersburg, and she's got some very sort of spicy takes that are... Uh, you know, they're not uh, algorithm friendly, shall we say. And 
she sort of has this frenemy relationship with Richard Spencer. <laughs> and she's basically uh, come out, you know, very pro-Israel, very anti-Hamas, which is, you know, the opposite of Richard's position vis-a-vis uh, Israel. And they finally met last night on Twitter. They, were, they started going at it at Twitter. And it was an interesting conversation. Um, but Twitter spaces are, uh, they're where the fun is, bro. Uh, who hosts this space? I think it's it's this guy called Nuance Bro. His his handle is Nuance Bro, and that's all I know about him. And you know he's fair enough. Um, there's some you know it sounds like these guys have solid jobs, solid careers, high IQ, um, possibly you know government related or government adjacent or stuff like that. But you. Are you optimizing for fun or for truth here, Elliot? Oh, come on, bro. It's always for fun, bro. That's the problem with me. That's what keeps me on the margins, man. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so then this, uh, so a Jewish fellow came on. So basically the, the dominant tone of this uh, space is, you know, pretty much anti-Jewish, anti-Israel. Um, and it's kind of a hug box a lot of times. Or it's that topic which I simply cannot stand and cannot bear to listen to, which is, it goes this way. Bro, I saw this movie, and it was good. <laughs> you know, I hate that <laughs> <Yeah>. conversation. <laughs> I, I literally just cannot bear, like, even a minute of it. It's just like, it's the worst. But anyway, so this, uh, this Jewish fellow calls in, and he, he was very high Q. He was very... Um, uh, oh, 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 the other guy that was on this was Matt, our, your boy Matt. Matt, History Speaks Matt. Yeah. Uh, he was a uh, member of the panel. And he's basically gone on an anti-Israel jihad. He's uh, he's basically a jihadi as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> and um, uh, I don't know if I have to disavow that or not, if you do. But um, so he got into it with this Israeli caller, uh, or, or Jewish, I don't know, he may have been Israeli, but he, who was very, very well-versed in like the, the technical details of the history of the origin of Israel. And the two of them went back, were going back and forth, back and forth. And then sort of Richard kind of butted in um, as he's wont to do. He sort of like seems to like to take control of the stream. He sort of, you know, he theoretically he's just a participant, but he sort of likes to assume this leadership role when, even if it's not appropriate. But anyway, so he sort of butts into the conversation and then the Israelis, you know, says, Oh, this is Richard Spencer? I don't want to talk to you. You're a neo-Nazi. <laughs> I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and at this point, the Israeli gets kicked off, summarily executed, can be kicked off the street. <laughs> I don't know if it's possible to re- to uh, find this uh, conversation, but it was hysterical. But this is like 3 a.m. last night. I'm, I'm hearing this. So anyway, that was a bit of a that was a bit of a dopamine for me last night, bro. <clears throat> And uh, how's your cold water swimming going? Uh, I've been doing nothing but work. Nothing but work. I've been really crushed. So, But it's coming in the light at the end of the tunnel. But, yeah, it's been a real slog for the last month. So I, I, I've got my wetsuit. I'm not going to go in without a wetsuit. I decided I'm just going to wimp out and use a wetsuit. But there's nothing more uh, soothing to your nerves than a nice swim in the cold water, my dude. None of this. No pharmaceuticals needed on this end. You know what I mean? Hmm, that sounds like that's what uh, winning sounds like. 
Yeah, none of these loser cop-outs, bro. <sighs> All right, man. I, I, I don't have too much. I just figured I'd, you know. But you got to, bipping is the word of the day. This I, I, I suspect that bipping is going to become um, common parlance pretty soon. That's my bold prediction. Okay, that's uh, discouraging. You don't you don't see much uh, good news on the horizon. No, none at all. It's terrible. Everything's closing. Everything is. It's just weird. It's like a ghost city now. It's. I didn't think things could fall so far so fast, but they have. It's awful. And uh, have you been back in the flotation tank? No, 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 no. It's just not worth the money. I decided. <laughs> Fun as it was, but you know. Like you can go, you can go once for like eighty dollars, or you can go every day for a month for like four or five hundred dollars. There's no sort of reasonably priced option, right? It's not worth seventy or eighty dollars to go once, but it's it's not worth. It's also not worth you know a five hundred dollar a month commitment. So how, I can find the price. Of- yeah, how about a sports bar? I think you need to hit a sports bar at one twenty-five p.m. today. Epic game, San Francisco 49ers visit the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, you should be able to find community connection, male camaraderie. It's all going down this afternoon, bro. I may just do that, actually. I may just do that. There is a bar I could go to. And it is going to be a good game because this is really going to be – I think this will be probably the most important game of the regular season for the 49ers. Yeah. It, it, I mean, San Francisco beats people down. I, I just – I can't wait for this game, bro. Can't wait. I can wait, but I'm excited. There's no question. I'm no question. What you got to do is you got to watch the game, but you got to listen to the bone. You got to listen to the bone for the commentary. Then you get the true San Francisco experience. Oh, so I was in a sports bar Thursday night watching the Cowboys and the Seahawks, and I you know, meet these complete strangers. And uh, How long do you think it takes me to get on to talking about hero systems? You know, about, about 10 minutes. Like these were... <laughs> conservative guys and they were kind of outraged that you know many lefties were seizing on osama bin laden's letter about why he attacked america and i was explaining well osama bin laden's got a hero system i've got one you've got one you know we've all got different hero systems and and uh and one of them at least uh subscribed to to my channel so maybe maybe he's even listening right now but yeah i was talking about hero systems in a sports bar yeah, and before you knew it, you had your phone in one hand and your dick in the other, and your friends were gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll hook you up with a Deep Left Jokel with my uh, personal connection. Maybe you two can have it out. What's going on with Deep Left Jokel? He seems to have disappeared. I don't see his notifications anymore. I think he's having uh, kind of a lost in the desert experience. I think he's doing some deep introspection, which is probably will well suited to him and have you been playing uh, tennis no I, I i used to play tennis a lot i mean a super amount but now it, it um it just hurts too much <laughs> the day after playing tennis is it's like I, i'm i'm riddled with pain from head to toe i just don't recover as much no. as i used to and nobody wants to just have a polite little you know hitting session they all want to compete I don't really want to compete at tennis anymore. I just want to hit, you know, and just have a nice, nice leisurely exercise session. I don't want to have this sort of, you know, grin and bear it, mano y mano, competitive situation. I don't want any of that because I'm going to push my, when I do, I push myself way beyond my limits. So no, 
but I think it's great. I was recommending that uh, Stephen J. James play some tennis. I think, I think it's, uh, I think it would be uh, a good, good sort of compromise and allow him to uh, continue his athletics at the same time, you know, not having his head kicked in. Uh, true or false? <laughs> men, men need to conquer. There is a tincture in men. Do you know that quote? No. It's like a famous quote from, I forgot the guy's name, but he says there's a tincture in men's blood that would have him be a monarch if he could. Something like that. And it, it's said in the context of like devising laws, uh, how to create a society and create the proper laws and how to wrestle with the with the uh with the uh, self um the ambitions that are inherent in in men and he says there's a tincture in men's blood which i think is really a code word for testosterone yeah so yes it is a man's nature to conquer and, and i i think that if you if you're not conquering then you're going to be much more compulsive perhaps uh, sexually or with drugs or alcohol i mean men need to feel that conquering thing yeah if you're not conquering you're slipping bro uh, uh anyway hey listen i uh i got more work crap i gotta do i gotta i gotta drop okay i wish you good mental health all right shalom blessings shalom blessings right, very like i mean in that it's just like this kind of revolutionary energy essentially i mean who the who has said something similar to that and it's not it's and it's a kind of anti-capitalistic like Fuck you. You know, you can't control my speech through your money. You're bribing it. You're like, it was very, uh, I, I, I have to say that I, I admired it. I, yeah, it's hard it, not to. I, he called out Bob Iger. He was like, Bob, I know you're in the yeah. audience. Go fuck yourself. I mean, and then he I said, don't know uh, about this guy's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this talking about Elon Musk. And now I think as uh, Chuck Johnson who's interjecting here, it's Charles Johnson here. And you have to understand oh, there's always Charles been a Johnson. relationship. Oh, okay. There's always been a relationship between the apartheid, you know, South Africans and the Netanyahu types. Right. They're both about the systematic oppression of people. And let's be real here. Like he he went over to Israel both because Bibi needed him. But, B, you know, they both needed each other. It's a mutual parasitism. Like, let's not let's not, you know, let's not. The larger thing that's going on here is the macroeconomics are shifting. Interest rates are higher. Firms are spending less money on advertising. And if you look at all the firms that basically are boycotting Musk right now, they're all Chinese implicated. Right. Biden goes and meets with Xi. They cut all the advertising revenue. I mean, that, that's what's really going on there. Well, look, I think that we can temper our enthusiasm and look at these things, you know, with with, with clarity. I mean, we, for example, Musk, you know, I, but I don't think anyone on this call is overexcited about Musk. And mm -hmm. no one on this call, I think, is overexcited about Trump, for example. I think that we've learned, right? We, we have some experience and wisdom now. We all were very excited about Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've kind of we've kind of had our hymen broken as it were we're we're we're, we're now we're now experienced as we are but maybe that doesn't apply nick was being called out by netanyahu by name right like let's not forget like i mean how old were you nick when the prime minister of a foreign country came after you like they're clearly threatened by what nick represents and this is just very obvious and it's more like they have to bow down to the shift in the power that's taking place that's clearly what's going on. I mean, Musk wants advertising attention, but he also wants users, and the users don't like Israel. Like, it's over for them, yeah. you know, across the board. All right. Well, yeah, Charles, it seems like you're sounding a more positive note now. Um, but, I, again, I think that we have to be realistic. And I think that, um, 
your note of caution is also well taken. I mean, yeah, you know, these uh, because, uh, again, to uh, Nick's earlier point, this idea of Trump essentially being an egoist, I think that that also applies to Musk. Um, so they're, they're egoists and they kind of like don't want to be told what to do when you tell them what to do. They kind of they're kind of like, well, fuck you. You know yeah. what I mean? And the, the problem is that the problem that the Jews are encountering is the Jews are traditionally the people that tell you what to do, right? And so when they start telling Musk and Trump what to do, they uh, get pushback. Yeah. I don't. Can someone? Uh, yeah. Let's mute some. Yeah. Please. There's some. Please, uh, yeah. Mute yourself and we'll, we can just raise hands in just a little bit. Um. So Nick, let's go back a little bit. So I remember I couldn't find these videos because I. I so how many people have you seen at a free Palestine demonstration that you would you would like to court? Because these demonstrations do not seem to be inspiring our, our most uh, physically attractive fellow citizens. Rather similar to the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, how many of the people appearing at your typical Black Lives Matter demonstration, would you like to court and bring into your family and reproduce with? Okay, would I lay three points on the San Francisco-Philadelphia game? So I, I presume uh, points spread San Fran versus Philadelphia. Okay, so is that, uh, is it Philly by three? Oh, I can't gamble. That's right. <laughs> so, wow, the visiting 49ers are set as the 2.5 point away favorites over Philadelphia. That's that's surprising. Well, the the dynamic heading into this game is that San Francisco has just been slaying people, just slashing people, just devastating and destroying people, and Philadelphia has just been scraping by. Uh, but they're playing in Philadelphia. So uh, no idea. I don't want to don't want to get my old gambling gambling juices going. Do I think pro-Israel demonstrators are more attractive? Yes, I do. But that's just my entirely anecdotal and probably highly biased perception. Being you know pro-Israel, pro-Zionist myself. Uh, I, I was just curious what your own perceptions have been. Okay, let's get some Julie Hartman. It's interesting for me because one of the things I want to Prager. ask them, especially the ones who smear me as evil or unkind. Well, not teachers. You, to be, uh, right, you, no, 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 fellow, teachers. Fellow no, students. Yeah, fellow students. Teachers never did that ever. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. But what I want to say to them is like, do you think I just like totally changed my character? And, and but you know what? I mean, I guess that could happen. Have you ever seen someone who has started off really nice and then I, they became I do mean? know someone. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Yes, okay. it's very okay, rare. It can happen. There is a human being that I had a, a friendship with. It's the only case in my life that this happened. And he became evil. Wow. And I, it's the only person I know who I would describe as evil. It, it's, a, it's a very odd case. I will also say this. Uh, when I knew him, and he was a, a sweet, intelligent guy, he was religious. Oh, and now he's not? Oh, he's, a, he, he's not just not religious. He's an anti-religious atheist. Ugh. Publicist. What do you think happens to someone like that? Because I, my, I, I don't know the answer. My question for the high school classmates was like, do you think I just totally like changed my know, character? Like, why do you think well, I won the character award well, every single year? Well, here's a better question. Was... What, is, what, <laughs> what do you mean when you say, I, Julie Hartman, am evil? 
Why do you think Julie Hartman won the character award every single year at her high school? Right. What well, look, What constitutes my evilness? It's literally like talking with toddlers. I mean, the, the well, level that, of stupidity right. and well, the, ignorance. And, and the inability to answer. Oh, I mean, I don't even try to get into it. But it's just, it's really interesting. Like, you, I had a sterling rep- reputation. You knew, like, do you think I just... I just threw that out the window or I just so they like, have, like, I, I'll tell you what they would say. You sold your soul for money. Look, people, people form an impression of us and then they usually stick to it and we form impressions of others and we generally stick to it because it's an economizing device. And when people act and speak in a way that's out of, out of our perception of them, we explain it away if we like them. And if there are people that we don't like and they do good things, we explain that away. So we usually see people in particular situations. This is why situation is so important. We tend to see people just at work or at church or at a sports bar. We just tend to see most people in a particular situation and then form an impression of them. But people are very different in different situations, right? Many people are honest at work and dishonest with their spouse. Many people are good with their kids and horrible to their employees. Many people are honest within their in-group and rapacious and dishonest with out-groups. So, you know, why are people, you know, really in reality quite different from what we expect because of the, the situation? So when Julie Hartman was going to this particular high school, right, she did what the the authority figures in that high school valued. She, you know, accorded herself to the, to the behavior that those important to her, you know, put a premium on. Now she's fallen in with the Prague University crowd and she comports herself in accord with what the Prague U crowd values. And so that's what we all tend to do, right? We, we find our crowd and then we try to behave in a way that our crowd will you know, respect and, and praise, all right? When we develop a hero system, all right, we get this, this notion of what's heroic, and then we live up to this hero system that generally comes from our community. And that's what tends to guide us in life. And when we change our hero system and change our community, all right, we're going to change what we value, and that's going to have some effect on our behavior as we change in situation, right, that our behavior is going to change, right? I, I noticed that my, my friends who get married and have children, right, their, their family becomes their top priority and becomes very difficult to schedule anything with them anymore because they're so pri- preoccupied with their, their kids. They don't ha- have time for the friendship anymore. It's a very Where's the money? Thing. I'm, oh, no, that's a separate. That's right. They don't. They, they say this about all of us. Yes. Oh, yes. oh, Prager. Oh, he's a conservative because that's where the money is. Are you joking? That's where the money is. Ninety-nine percent of the money in this society for advocacy oh. is on the left. Oh my God. I mean, I didn't sell my money or my, my money. I didn't sell myself for fame. I'm not famous. I didn't sell myself for money. I'm not, I'm not. You know, making millions of dollars. I didn't. I mean, I've lost friends. I mean, this has been a huge. And, and by the way, I'm so grateful for this career. I love it. It's changed my life. It's elevated my life. There have been a hell of a lot of sacrifices. You know, they just they just think you're right that oh. She just did. People, you know what? Forgive me. I know you want to say something. No, no, but I want no, to make I this point. This world that we're in, the conservative, public-facing, talk, podcast, media world, it's such a rarefied world. I, we, should, we should really discuss that. As I've told you, I've never, and I mean never, met someone 
who's on the air who I isn't lovely in person and gracious. And I've met I Hollywood people who are, no you know, growing up in L.A., I've met Hollywood celebrities, and some are really nice and some are really not nice. But in this conservative media world, everyone is off the air exactly who they are on the air. And no. being at this conference that we were at in London, which we haven't talked about on Dennis and Julie, by the way, you know so much of it was networking. And what was so amazing, I, I observed this, was like all of us are networking with, with each other to like try to facilitate the most amount of good. Mm-hmm. Like what other world where you're like exchanging business cards and you're like trying to like get to someone solely because... Yeah, in certain situations, they're really nice. And guess what? In other situations, they're not nearly going to be nice. All right? It's not like conservatives are just universally morally superior, more honest, more nice than people on the left. Because you want to save Western civilization and like do the most amount of good. And so I think that the reason why there are so many genuine people on this side is because we really, many of us, and obviously there are... Okay, why do many people on the right seem more genuine? Because people on the right tend to come out of visceral attachments, right? People on the left tend to come out of a strategic, autonomous, reflexive, uh, rational enlightenment approach to life that, that values you know, reason and working towards a certain you know, disembodied courtier morality, people on the right tend to have much more visceral attachment, and so they are much more likely to seem authentic. Probably some, but like many, almost all of us are doing what we're doing for a cause that's greater than ourselves. That's we're not, right. You know, like we're not selling out, a lot of us are not selling out for money. <laughs> so I was raised a, a liberal, a Democrat, and of course a Jew. And- Redundant. Almost, almost, that's right. In Brooklyn. So my life has ended up with conservatives, Christians, and uh, what did I say, liberal, what were the three things I said? Liberal, Democrat, Jew. Oh, yeah, so Republicans, conservatives, and Christians. And they're just generally really nice people. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to say there aren't some, you know, bad apples, but that's inevitable. But, yeah, it's really, you, it's really struck you. Yes, so much. I mean, again, I, I... Yeah, they're nice in some ways, but it, it, as Julie spends more and more time in this world, right, she has, she works for a conservative Christian organization, Salem. Most of her social life seems to be with the PragerU crowd, so she has every reason right now to fit in with this crowd, just like she largely fit in with her high school crowd. But as she spends more time, right, she'll inevitably be hurt and disappointed and let down and come to a more nuanced understanding of this. Everyone who I, I shouldn't say everyone, but almost everyone who I encounter in this world are just so, so genuine good and, and gen- deep. Genuine. Very genuine. As you said, the same off the stage as on the stage. Yes, because... Yeah, people who join Scientology say the same thing. People who join the, the Moonies say the same thing. People who join cults always, always speak this way. Because how do cults work? They discredit other sources of information. And that's, you know, what Dennis Prager and Prager U does. They, they, they practice, you know, epistemic corruption. Right? They, they promote epistemic corruption. They try to deny other sources of knowledge and, and try to claim that, you know, I, Dennis Prager, with no expertise, I know more about vaccines than people who've devoted their life to studying vaccines. So through epistemic corruption, through, through you know, various manipulation techniques common to gurus, right, you, you bring people into an insular in-group and you give them love and you you know, shape their, their worldview and you discredit outside sources of information. Because look, maybe there are some people who are coming into this. I'm not, I'm not going to rule out the possibility that some people may see like a benefit in being conservative and being public, but there's a lot, there's so much sacrifice and vitriol that you have to endure that you have to be a true believer in order to do it. 
Right, a I true just believer wouldn't use true goodness. believer because that that. Uh, it's a term. Do you know the term, the true believer? No. Oh, I knew you didn't. That's why I'm asking. What is it? You can read this in an hour and a half. Eric Hoffer, the true believer. Okay. Eric Hoffer was a longshoreman hmm. and a philosopher, hmm. a very rare person. He was brilliant. You you read the true believer will be one of the best books you've ever oh, read. Oh, good. I'm excited. Yeah, I know you are. I will read it. Yeah. So true. so what is it referring no, to? No, no. That true, true believer book, right? is, 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 has become synonymous with fanatic. Right. You know, the, the person is a true, he's a true believer. He doesn't question himself. He doesn't mm. question anything. I'm just, you, I know you didn't mean it right. that way. You meant it literally. Yes. We truly believe. Yes, in the cause. Yes, and, and that is absolutely accurate. And that is what motivates yes. us above anything else. So I want to read to you something I read in a New York, in, a, in Atlantic, because I'm mostly, I was telling my wife just yesterday. So I spent, I flew, flew back, I just flew back from Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, a week without flying is not possible for me. I'm so sorry. Don't forget. Can I just say one quick thing? Yeah. Also, just finally on this rarefied environment world, everyone is very happy for one another. That's another distinguishing yes, factor. Yes, we want and to help is, each other. I remember when I first started working for you, Candace Owens left PragerU to go to Daily Wire. And I said to you, how do you feel about that? And you said, I'm so happy for her. It's great. It's all about the cause. And right. I saw this at ARC. I saw this at the conference. Like, like people, when someone was up on stage, like everyone watching was really happy for them. And, and it's just, it's a very healthy environment because we're all trying to help each other and help ourselves to facilitate the... That, that is- the- yeah, eventually the, the blinders are going to come off and she'll realize that conservatives are just as vulnerable to petty jealousies yeah, envy as any other group of people. Tired right, possible. So, I'm so sorry. Go no, on. no, no, no. It's a non-issue. Tampa, so, Florida. Uh, I was telling my wife how much time I spent on the plane reading mm-hmm. The Atlantic, which is on the left. And and then I was telling the same thing to Alan. I I actually, it's almost bizarre, the, the interest I have in reading those I don't agree with. Do you know, that's why I learned Russian, to read Pravda, the Soviet communist newspaper. I have always been fascinated with the opposition, mm-hmm. and especially with the left. Mm-hmm. How how and why do they think what they think? So anyway, so I was reading a very long thing. So do you not I want get to angry? Huh? Do you not get angry when you're reading it? I tend to get angry. Oh, that's an interesting question. It's so it just it, it so repulses me. That I, and I do read it, but I, I feel myself my mood getting. I'm, ver- I'm very controlled in, in that world in the emotional world. I mean, I'm very emotional as you know, but I'm, I'm I don't react emotionally to that stuff. Hmm. I I, fe- I first of all I expect awful, so it, I'm not I'm never shocked. Sometimes they say stuff that's just so vile that. I guess it does. But anyway, so David Brooks is a New York Times columnist. I remember him from before he was at the New York Times. He's actually, I believe, with the National Review. He started out on the conservative side. Today, he's, he's not a leftist. He's one of the few non-left. He's liberal, but he's not one of the lefty. And he's and he's absolutely irrational on Trump. I mean, there really is Trump derangement syndrome. People stop thinking clearly. But that's not the point I want to make. So he wrote a piece on, he thinks about big stuff, which I like, uh, obviously. And why has America gone into moral decline? Which is perfect. So he admits. Yeah, uh, con artists like other con artists, right? Gurus respect other people's game, right? I mean, David Brooks has an absurd level of just complete disregard for the for the facts, completely misreads academic studies. And, of course, you know, Dennis Prager would, you know, consider him a, a fellow truth seeker. So there's been a moral Yes, he, ha- he doesn't admit the left caused it. Okay, well, that, that's... that's what drives me nuts about him, but right. it doesn't matter. Because I get a lot of data. So listen to this piece of data. I want, I want to share this with you and everybody listening or watching. According to research by Ryan, Ryan Streeter, who is at the American Enterprise Institute, we'll definitely have him on my show as a result of this one line. Ready? Listen to this line. See, it's, it's, I read very slowly. And one of the reasons I read very slowly is because I want to understand every word that is said. I learned to read, in effect, studying the Torah. And you learn it by reading it very carefully and always asking, what does it mean when it says that? Why doesn't it say X? Could have said X. And with this very slow, careful reading, uh, what, what 
Dennis Prager reads almost always simply confirms his pre-existing perspectives on life. X better with Y. Okay. Lonely young people. This is going to fascinate you. Lonely young people are seven times more likely to say they are active in politics mm. than young people who aren't lonely. That is an interesting insight that, that rings true. I have been talking about this for years. Leftism is a way for people, especially young people, to find meaning. Meaning, going to a protest, posting on your social media, you know, putting these stickers on, on your computer, tr trumpeting out what you believe is, is giving people a life purpose. Absolutely. If you don't know what you are, yeah, what you want to do, right. what you but like, that is a really compelling default. So it's interesting that the term is the, lo the, the basis is lonely. Mm. I will assuage my loneliness in politics. And you know what's great about that too for them? They feel like they're a part of something. They're feeling like they're, you know, around other people and they're less lonely. And it's a way to channel anger about their own lives, their own loneliness, their own lack of purpose. And they, they sublimate that rage and that dissatisfaction and project it onto America. Right. So Republicans don't tend to go to protests as much because Republicans tend to have jobs and have families, right? The, the Democrats are disproportionately a coalition of the vengeful and the unhappy who are much less likely to be married, to participate in organized religion, and in many cases to be employed. That's correct. That's what I think that I think I So the happier America gets, the better that is for Republican political fortunes. The more unhappy America gets, the better that is for the Democrats and the coalition of the fringes who are only united by hatred for white you know, Christian America. Observe this last week. I think the basis of Trump derangement syndrome is that people feel like Trump is a really easy and ex socially acceptable outlet to voice their rage about things that they don't feel comfortable actually expressing their rage about in their own lives. Wow. The people you know who hate Trump. Is, is, I think is, that's is, the case. Yeah. Yes. Why? So when I know you didn't want to, you said that Trump derangement syndrome is not the, the point I'm making or the point I'm focusing on. But forgive me, I do want to ask, and then we'll get back to this. What do you think is the basis of Trump derangement syndrome? So you're, the, the reason for my hesitation, but I will answer you, is I know some of the most prominent never-Trumpers in the country. Mm. So it's, very, it's a very emotionally difficult subject for me because I have been friends with some of them, and they're really, they're, they're very famous. So Dennis has often talked about how he's never lost a friend. He does have a gift for friendship, and he does have you know, a large network of stable relationships. But at, at what price? How do you maintain a large network of stable relationships how do you not lose a friend essentially by not changing by not growing like when you grow and change significantly you will inevitably lose friends but uh, dennis prager you know apparently stumbled upon an approach to life that worked for him in high school and he largely has not changed that and therefore that makes it easier to maintain this large stable network of acquaintances and friends if he was to make a profound change all right, he would lose many of those friends, as indeed he did when he became a conservative in the late 1980s. Almost all his public speaking gigs in Jewish life dried up. Famous individuals. And I'm sure very deep, good people. Well, they're, they're deep and good in, in almost every other mm -hmm. area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, if you good don't point. like Trump, I have no issue. I don't think he's terribly likable. But who cares? Why isn't the question that people ask or should ask is, is individual X good or bad for America? Not do I like, do I like politician X is a narcissistic question. Because I don't give a damn whether you like Trump or not. It is a...
Okay, that's that's a pretty good point. All right, a uh, little excerpt here from Decoding the Gurus, a specific video, Decoding Academia, a paper on analytical thinking and religious belief. Illustration of why the people attempting to read studies, right, for, say, during COVID, who don't have statistical expertise, are not familiar with the literature. And even if they've worked out what p-values are or whatever, right, your Alexandros Marinos types, they, they don't have the proficiency to do that kind of critical examination, right? They fall at all the standard hurdles. And it is likely that in another context, if this was an anti-vaccine study, that none of this stuff that we're talking about would raise red flags, but all our inconsequential details would for them if there's a study showing, you know, the vaccines are, are safe. So it's just that, um, like, it actually isn't entirely, entirely intuitive about how to assess all the various aspects of studies. And if I give students a, lo a load of heuristics, on some of them, this paper would, uh, like, flash up strong points, right? But, but actually, I think it is good to also tell students to be um, wary of studies where the measures seem to fluctuate, uh, where there is the potential that they're undisclosed researcher degrees of freedom or things being measured that are not reported. And like where you have lots of results that are close to uh, significance that there's a problem. And if you look at literature like Psy, like anti-vax studies, like studies by pharmaceutical companies that are promoting dubious treatments, these are all patterns that you see repeated over and over again. So yeah. That's why I thought this was a good study to cover. Um, yeah. And I would hope that, that we won't see more papers like this too frequently in, um, in high-profile journals, but we probably will. <laughs> yeah. I was just having a crisis. Well, not really a crisis of conscience. That would be overstating it. But I was just checking back over this paper from mine of 2014, which I've totally forgotten. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I remember nothing. Do you have a mea culpa? Do you want to talk about your p-hacking ways? <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I didn't p-hack it, right? Because I think I'd remember um, doing something along those lines. Because, it, it, you know, you can't, it's difficult to really, like, we measured what we measured, right? We reported everything we measured. We did a survey. We looked at relationships. Yeah, yeah. There's not so many the exclusions and whatnot could have an impact, but uh, you. Yeah, you we didn't. Yeah, I, I just never. I, I know I never did. So that. what are you confessing, oh. Matt? Hit me. Well, well, what I'm confessing is that this, the, the effect for CRT was small, right? It was it was much smaller than than the effects for openness to experience and like the effects of demographics, for instance, in CRT. Okay. Like okay, so this is a paper that uh, showed people a picture of the thinker, that famous sculpture. And it claimed that it found people were less religious after looking at a picture of the, the thinker. And CRT refers to you know, critical, rational thinking. And so this is an academic paper that claims that as people become more critical and rational in their thinking, they become less religious. Now, I think there may be truth to that in that you know, traditional allegiances right, to things like religion, tribe, you know, family, extended family, nation, right? The, the way that people on the right, you know, experience life is to be dominated by certain, you know, visceral attachments that go, you know, before and above and beyond rational inquiry. So people on the left tend to put a greater emphasis on the power and ability of reason to shape a life. People on the right tend to put more of an emphasis on the power of genes and on tribal, national, and religious loyalties, ties to, to blood and soil, and ties to, to family, extended family, and to the, these visceral experiences of, of God, of uh, nation, 
these traditional, you know, visceral experiences of these traditional allegiances that go beyond the rational. All right, that's how people on the on the traditional side of the spectrum, people on the right, tend to experience life. That is why people on the left accurately describe people like us on the right as more medieval than them, because we do experience the world in a more traditional way, and they try to experience the world through primarily the power of their you know, critical, rational thinking processes. People on the right have more skepticism about the power of reason to shape a life. Gender. Gender has a negative. So gender, I think, is, must be female. That's bad, bad practice of me. I didn't, didn't notice. You're keeping us on tenterhooks, Mark. <laughs> What's the problem? Uh, well, so in my discussion, I, I, I did draw attention to the fact that the effect size, consistent with previous studies, effect sizes for CRT and openness were relatively small. Good job. It's consistent with an understanding that individual climate factors is only one of multiple psychosocial determinants of religious adherence. Very good. That's, that's good. And then I say, this is my citation to Gervais. <laughs> Nevertheless, prior experimental evidence has supported a causal link between analytical thinking and faith. <laughs> Look, you were, you were just a victim, Mark. You were a victim of the literature. That's fine. You, were, you weren't lying. That is true. It's just the quality of the experimental evidence. <laughs> I, I could have checked the quality of the evidence better. You well, you didn't say good quality it. evidence. You just said <laughs> the evidence. <laughs> yeah. well, we'll, let you, we'll let you pass on that. But yeah. This is, a, I, I think it's an interesting study, and I think there is, I also like Gervais's and Norton Zion's uh, broader work on atheism and, uh, like, the psychology of religion and that kind of thing. So I, I'm not so fond of priming studies and that kind of thing. I think you have to be skeptical of them. But I, I, they have, like, cross-cultural survey work and, um, you know, books about big gods and this kind of thing. So this isn't to ding them as like people you shouldn't rely on. It's just like... No, no, we're all guilty to one degree or another, I think. And we're all trying to do better. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, I think a good thing to end this on, at least for me, is that there's relatively easy solutions to this. It's not, it's not an unsolvable problem. And, and the, there's actually multiple ways. Like one, just gather more data, right? Don't, don't run with an N of between 60 and 150, right? Go, you know, just go big. You know, get go 500 big, yeah. people, right? You and, have to pay them and, though. Yeah, you have to pay them, you know, but if, if it's important enough to be published in science, then Correct. you can spend a little bit of money. And the other thing is, obviously, just don't play silly buggers in terms of selective reporting. and um, Pre-register? Pre-registering, that's right. Like any one of these things can kind of fix it. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you, could, you could commit some other sins, but if you gathered a really huge data set, then you'd have very little ability to... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, like you'd have to really... Pre-hacking is much harder. It's like, much harder. if you have lots right. of measures and you have a big data set, you can find relationships. But if you have, like... <laughs> that's why I think, like, pre-registration is the, the ultimate one because as long as everybody knows what's in that yes. data set, then, like, it doesn't matter if you've selectively reported, like, because people will see that you have selectively reported out of 20 measures, right? So mm -hmm. this pre-registration is important. Open data is important. And larger sample size, more stringent... Right, so these details about how to do good investigative work, right? Not terribly exciting, right? Not compelling, talking about p-hacking and larger data sizes and uh, pre-registering your, your study, right? Not exciting stuff, but it does produce you know, more profound, more, more accurate work. You, you get to get closer to the truth. So if you optimize for truth, right, then you're going to be interested in what these guys are talking about. Not exciting, but just important. Not everything that's important is exciting. Engine, like uh, various researchers have argued for that a lot of it could be solved if you were to make the error rate lower, the P value yeah. to be yeah. much lower, that that actually would deal with a lot of the mm -hmm. um, yeah. thing. And others have said, no, 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 that's just 
That's just you know. No, uh, I'm all for no, I'm all for that. I'm I for I think that. it would do a lot of a lot of the legwork. Um, there are obviously edge cases where it wouldn't, but um, yeah. You don't have to become a Bayesian. Just set your p value to point one or point. The, the dual processing models are basically talking to. All right, talking here about uh, dual processing models, critical rational thinking, and religious belief. Oh, hearts. Well, it used to be dear to mine. I thought it was fun. Um, and that, like you said, doubled is the correct word. <laughs> I just dabbled in this a little bit. Uh, I did publish a paper with um, the far more um, expert and, um, well, I don't know how to, how to phrase him, but um, Gord Pennycook is, is a real, you know, shining star in this particular powerhouse. field. Powerhouse. He's a powerhouse. Yeah. That's right. He's, he's, he's a young man on the up and up. And, um, uh, yeah, we, we did a, we, we found something that's quite boring really, because we found something that a lot of other people have found too, which is that this, um, concept of analytical thinking, um, which, um, you know, psychologists have been interested in, it's got to do with dual process thinking. It's contrasted with the other process, which is, let me just stop thinking. you there, Matt. Yes. Oh, well, you were about to do it, baby. I was just going to, I thought you were going to round no, right for no, no, dual processing no, models. No, no, um, you, you go ahead. I was going to provide a brief introduction to those two concepts, but you, by all means. But, yeah, oh, well, you, uh, yeah, so, uh, I'll, I'll just do what you were about to do. But I was, I was just going to say for the uninitiated that dual processing models are basically talking about cognition and, um, this divide between cognitive processes that are quick, intuitive, sometimes called hot or fast. Right, hot, fast, quick, intuitive, you know, reflexive, visceral, cognitive processing models tend to be what dominate people on the right. Um, and those which are slower, more rational, more potentially cognitively demanding and take more time. And this was popularized in Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman's book, but it features in a whole bunch of stuff. So um, people are interested in how these different processes might produce. Right, the, the most important, you know, reactions the most important parts of the worldview of people on the right are usually quick, visceral, non-cognitive reactions to visceral loyalties to things like family, extended family, tribe, uh, nation, God, blood, soil. Different outcomes. Like, uh, And one way that people elicit it, for example, is if you put people under time restrictions and force them to respond quickly, maybe you get access to the intuitive, hot cognitive processes, whereas if you give them time, you might see more reflective um, process type responses. So yeah, that yeah. was, the, that was all I'll just say this paper relates to that because analytic thinking is in the second category of colder, more deliberate, slower, um, cognitive processing. Yeah. Yes. And that's what frequently makes people on the right, more immediately likable, more visceral, more authentic. All right. Because they are coming largely out of, you know, pre cognitive reactions to the world. I want to play a little bit more from uh, another edition of Decoding the Gurus. Here they're talking about uh, scientists Andrew Huberman from Stanford and Peter Atia talking about self-optimization, self-enhancement, you know, supplements, all that good stuff. Measure their activity levels. The two groups don't differ. They're doing roughly the same task, leaning down, cleaning out trash cans, etc. Guess what? The group that was informed about the health benefits of exercise lose 12% more weight compared to the other group. And no difference in actual movement? Apparently not. Now, how could that be? So that is uh, like a huge, if true kind of finding, isn't it? That you tell these workers about the health benefits of doing it, their activity levels don't differ, but their, your experimental manipulation of just people believing that it's good for them uh, to do this hotel work makes them lose more weight, be healthier. Chris, I think you looked into some of these articles that Huberman references. Yeah, I did. And like, because whenever I hear this kind of description about studies that are counterintuitive and dramatic. It rings the replication crisis warning bells, right? They jingle in my ear because this sounds very much of a piece like... Right, so people who like Richard Spencer and Nick Fuentes and, and Tucker Carlson who focus on the dramatic and the theatrical and you know, the counterintuitive and the mind-blowing and uh, you know, the anti-establishment thinking, 
all right, it's frequently bogus, right? This is a study that's very exciting, all right, but it's probably bogus. Like hurricanes that don't have female names lead to more fatalities because people don't take them as seriously. Hemicanes and hurricanes. Hemicanes and hurricanes. <laughs> yeah, the title did a lot of the work, I think. But yeah, so I, I'm wary of it for good reason because, you know, cute results get lots of press, but the replication crisis has shown that many of those studies don't hold up when you dig into it or whenever you have a, a more robust replication. And I didn't do a huge deep dive, but I did go back and look at some of the studies that they're citing. And one of them is mind over milkshakes. Mindsets, not just nutrients, determine ghrelin response, right? And this claim is saying that if you give people the exact same milkshake and you tell them in one case, like it's this super sweet one. And in the other one, it's a, a 0% fat one that you see um, this difference in the production of grayling. Or, like in any case, you see a physiological difference in the body in response to that. And it's not such a dramatic claim because priming the body that it's about to receive a certain type of food, maybe it could induce a type of reaction. But when I went and looked at the study, uh, these are the kind of warning signs you would have for a pre-replication crisis or post-replication crisis questionable study. We'd want a study that isn't pre-registered, that has a small amount of participants, that has measures which are noisy, right? And in particular, people might think that physiological measures allow you to be more precise because you can measure heart rate or you can measure different hormones in the blood or so on. And it's a quantifiable, objective measure. But anybody who's worked with physiological data should know that there's a lot of noise in it. And there's a lot in exactly... Right. So there's a saying in journalism, you know, if you check that, that story, you'll lose it. Right, it's, it's a lot easier to have, you know, cute, exciting, dramatic stories if you don't worry about the facts. It's a lot easier to have, you know, cute, dramatic, exciting academic studies if you don't worry about integrity and truth and, you know, the ability to, you know, replicate a result. So much that is exciting and cute and attention-getting, such as what people like Richard Spencer and Nick Fuentes and Tucker Carlson traffic in, you know, in the final result is not true, right? The, these are people who do not optimize for truth and, and people like Andrew Huberman, right? Not someone who optimizes for truth, presents himself as a truth seeker and all into the science, but he's a con man grifter. Exactly how you measure things, which measures you're kind, what you're comparing to. And this is especially the case if you have longitudinal heart rate measures or something like that, right? Mm. Yes. I've worked with heart rate, can confirm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in any case, following Huberman's recommendation about looking at the figures in the paper, two of them are showing the different advertisements they used. One of them is showing the self-reported perceived difference in healthiness of the milkshake. And the fourth one, which is the key one, is showing ghrelin over time as a function of shake mindset. And it has um, 20, 60, and 90 intervals. And it's comparing the ghrelin production or whatever pattern. And there is a difference between the two of them. At P equals 0.02 significance mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. And the amount of subjects in it were... 53 participants, however, two did not attend. So 51 participants divided by two conditions, around 25 in each mm -hmm. condition. Right. P equals 0 0.02, 25 per condition study. Yep. Doubt, yep. <laughs> doubt the little meme with doubt flashing yeah. above my head. And similarly, there's a paper about hotel maids being told that they were doing exercise, right? That like their housework was exercise and they lost a bunch of weight if they were told that. Whereas the same maids doing the same amount of effort didn't lose as much weight in the control condition. Now, again, this would be a 
important result because it would mean you should just tell everyone everything they're doing is exercise because apparently their body will switch into like some burning calorie mode or whatever because they're mm. saying the amount of physical exercise that they did was consistent according to self-reported measures mm. but the group that was told that doing housework was exercise lost we the, the kind of power of mindset over physical reality yeah. <laughs> yeah. so here matt looking at the sample size first 84 subjects this time 44 in the informed group 40 in the control condition so bigger at least than the previous study but still 40 odd per condition, not, not huge. Right. Mm. Um, and looking at the. So I love all these free Palestine protests because the more of them, I think the less sympathy Americans will have for the Palestinian cause because so much of it contains terrible behavior. Pro-Palestine protesters took over the Grove, a major shopping area in Los Angeles on Black Friday and made it impossible for people to conduct their business. It was Black Lives Matter protests that almost got Donald Trump reelected because the more you had Black Lives Matter protests, the less sympathy Black Lives Matter gathered. And I think the more people see pro-Palestine protests, right, I think the less sympathy the Palestinian cause will get. And I'm biased, right? I'm a rabid Zionist. Not the self-reported differences, the differences in terms of mean weight loss, the kind of objective measures. The weight difference between the the two was uh, 143.72. This was in the informed condition, whereas the control condition had a weight of 146.71. I guess that's in pounds. So around three pounds difference, and the starting weights are similar, 145.5, 146.92. So you're talking about a difference of around two pounds, right, over the period. And it, it does reach high levels of significance, like under 0.001, but... Again, Matt, color me skeptical here. It is possible that they've they found a very large um, effect here, but when you have- no, when you when you drill down, you, you find out that what was cute and exciting turned out to be false. So we replicate, and and this is the kind of thing where, like, I think you could report this in a manner which is responsible, saying some studies that have small samples but uh, were not pre-registered have not been replicated that we might be wary of have found these kind of effects, mm. but. But that's not the way Huberman reports it, right? Huberman is like, these guys are stellar. These are the, the, like, the leaders in this field. And they find these incredible studies with amazing effects that demonstrate like, the placebo effect is just beyond powerful, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of TED talky as opposed to post-replication crisis talk. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, you do have to, you don't have to do Bayesian statistics, but you, I think you can apply that slightly Bayesian reasoning, which is that your prior expectation on the probability that just telling someone that something is good for you makes it better for them should, should be pretty low, right? That there's an actual physical effect going on there. And, it, and you know, one small end study, it shouldn't move the needle so far that you're breathlessly excited about these jaw-dropping, earth-shattering results. Um, like you said, even in an experiment like that, there's all kinds of other mechanisms that could be at play. Um, like it could be true, right? It's possible. But it could also be that the, the people who are told that exercise is really great for them, that their work um, is really good for them, could have been doing some other exercise or even eating a little bit less or who knows, and they failed to measure that or self-report it exactly that there's a thousand possible explanations so you know you really would want to get excited about this kind of thing once it's been triangulated and confirmed using multiple different methods because if it really is true and it really is earth shattering then you should see a bunch of different groups looking at it in different ways and and confirming it um rather exactly than, yeah yeah and it should be you know if the effect is this big you get a couple of pounds for just one short intervention then like great you know this is this is huge news and you should be able to replicate it fairly easily but in general this doesn't happen right um people don't make efforts to replicate and when they do they, they do it in a, a, a completely different way so yeah so i'm just saying again Huberman to me is like a pre-replication crisis ted talk guy like he he doesn't seem to have picked up about the 
issues with overhyping studies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is all because like he sometimes does reference it, but it's it's obvious that he's much more about the hype than he is about temper your expectations. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, if you're even if you're a member of the public, it's not hard. Yeah, so there are a lot of people who are about the hype rather than about truth, right? Most uh, public commentators or live streamers don't seem to optimize for truth and decency and goodness. They optimize for for the hype, for the cute, for what's exciting and theatrical. I do. I think absorb what um, I think is good practice these days, which is that if you see a small end study, if it's finding a counterintuitive and very surprising result, if there's a p-value somewhere between 0.01 and 0.05, you know, there's probably other things, other red flags too. But you know, just you know, don't assume that it's definitely, definitely true. The findings. So here's a bit more in the study, Matt, and I, I want to. Get... Okay, let me fast forward here. Point not four. right. Not to 20 per condition. Some mask that identifies a particular kind of little region. And, you know, there could be nothing wrong with that. That could be totally orthodox. Unless you are like an fMRI guy and are fully familiar with the software and all these things, you really have no idea about the research degrees of freedom that are involved there. You don't know how much, like, was there any tinkering with, with parameters? Right. So academics, journalists, people you interact with in daily life are using an awful amount of... uh, you can call it freedom or moral laxity to manipulate and maneuver their way through life to their own advantage, but not to your advantage. On the other hand, if you're dealing with people who optimize for truth, if you try to optimize for truth, you're more likely to surround yourself with people who optimize for truth, and you're going to be less vulnerable to be taken in by some con man. Are there different masks they could have had a look at? There's like so many things there that are just, it's a bit of a black box. And I think that's what, um, you know, at least for me, it just increases my level of skepticism. But even that aside, even if it was a really simple methodology that you could really understand, you know what I mean? Like a simple behavioral measure, which you just counted something, you know, something you could easily wrap your head around. It was all pre-registered. Even if all, all that were the case, then yeah, with that sample size and only finding one significant effect between the three groups that they looked at and it being P equals 0.04, all, all of those things would make me go, mm, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put a huge degree of credence in it. And this is not to say that, Chris, I mean, I wonder what you think about this, because I've detected a note of skepticism from you regarding the effects of placebos having actual physical effects on the body. But I mean, my rough understanding of it is, is that it's not a priori totally ridiculous. Like it is, it, you know, the, the mind and the body, if we're going to do Cartesian dualism, are sort of intimately related. They both have effects on the other. And if, if you believe something is true, then it's going to have the psychological effects, oh, which no. are going to translate into physical effects at some point, right? Yeah, I have no skepticism about the placebo effect existing or that it, um, like you say, you know, what people expect about things that, you know, where else is it going to show up? Even the fact that the people's subjective self-reporting is different. It wouldn't be a surprise for me to find that, you know, you could find correlates with brain activity that represent that. So it's not a huge reach, but it's the one, the evidence here is not hugely persuasive to me because, like you said, the limitations of sample size, the fact that, so there is another figure towards the end, which is looking at thalamus, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, functional connectivity. And there they say they do find a difference between the three conditions, right? But like, they're on the verge of significance in a, in a bunch of cases, but I would not be surprised if there are very many other possible candidates that are on the, yeah. you know, the file drawer. And the way that you could prove me wrong about that is by, like, I... To go to technology more than just the two, the two ones where they found a significant difference, you have to see. So I'm not surprised at that, but the point of a journal call is that you are not the author, right? So you should be approaching things critically. Uh, otherwise, you're just... Right. So that's the good thing about trying to think socially, which is what I'm doing now. I'm sharing ideas with you, and then you're, you're pushing back. And when we think out loud together, we're going to see things more clearly than if we just try to figure things out for ourselves. All right, uh, your boss is not going to accept every claim you make, all right? You're going to do better work if you're going to be held accountable uh, by a boss, by a spouse, by family members, by friends, by a community. 
All right, we all tend to behave better when we're held accountable. And that's also true for academics. The PR person for them. Um, and so this is Huberman talking about the results. And let's see if he is looking at them critically or overhyping. What I find just outrageous and outrageously interesting about this study is simply that what we are told about the dose of a drug changes the way that our physiology responds to the dose of the drug. And in, and in my understanding, this is the first study to ever look at dose dependence of belief effects. Right, to really, and why would that be important? Well, for almost every study of drugs, you look at a dose-dependent curve. You look at zero, low dose, medium dose, high dose. And here, they, they clearly are seeing a dose-dependent response simply to the understanding of what they expect the drug ought to do. In other words, you can bypass pharmacology somewhat. Mm, yeah. That last line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's a big stretch. Um, like, I th there's, some, there's some evidence of uh, placebo effects having... Right, I'd say a majority of my audience loves that, right? Loves this idea that you can bypass pharmacology through the placebo effect, you know, bypass pharmacology through, you know, a swim in cold water, bypass pharmacology through prayer, meditation, religion, yoga, uh, eating right. Well, sometimes you can't and sometimes you can't. In, you know, measurable physiological effects, I think, in the, even in the treatment of depression or something like that. But they're reasonably weak, I think. It's certainly not something that you could use to bypass pharmacological interventions, I would think. Yeah. And so I want to contrast a little bit with the way Adia responds when he sees this study, right? So he's, he's looking at the same figures that uh, I was highlighting and, and listen to his response. Look at figure 2B. Mm -hmm. Am I reading this correctly? So it's got um, four bars on there. You've got the grouping parameter. Right. So what they're doing is they're just saying, if we just look at the thalamus, what is the level of activation? I see. So this suggests that the only statistical difference was between the, the low, low and the high. That's right. And nobody else was statistically different. That's right. But that's not the whole story. Yeah, so like, him was super excited about it being a dose-dependent relationship, right? But it's like it's actually just the like nothing and the high one. So that's, um, but yeah, I mean, the Chris, no, like, so sorry. he points out Matt just to give Hubia and Hubia. That's like, like a horrific hybrid to Huberman history. He does justify that claim by pointing to the four B ah, okay, and the different one, and he says this. So figure four B, if you look at parameter estimate, so this is the degree of activation between the thalamus and the ventricle. You do see, um, but they didn't see any differences in performance on this game. So. So yeah. So apparently, so there's this activity which is supposedly indicative of better concentration, better signal to noise filtering, or whatever. But it's not yielding any measurable changes in in performance. Yeah, I actually tried to go in because the reporting of the result of the behavioral measure wasn't completely clear. I downloaded the file and had a look, and uh, I think they are claiming some signal, like you know, one that relies on like interpreting a particular kind of. Okay, getting a little specialized, but there's some good stuff. Far less amenable to research degrees of freedom, Chris. Like my suspicion is that you've got a lot of choices in terms of how you want to slice and dice your, your FNRI images. But, you know, with these standard games, economic games they set up, there isn't so much wiggle room. Yeah, so I would be inclined to think the same. And actually, Adia is somewhat, again, notes, hits a skeptical note about focusing on this relationship measure instead of the, the actual the area. activation in the area. Okay, let me just fast forward here to the good bits. Oh, it's, it's surprising that this doesn't have, and he's kind of looking for explanations rather than saying, well, actually, this it, it doesn't It's a weakness. Up. It's a weakness, yeah. yeah. And every time Adia raises a point, he's like, this is what we do at Journal Club. We, you know, we see things about him like, but, but you aren't. Like, if Adia wasn't here, basically, you would have used the perfunctory, you know, this is a preprint. I'm not saying it's... Talking about you, meaning Andrew Huberman, who has an enormous social media following by telling people things that they want to hear. To be all and end all. But Adia is the one that is actually saying, well, but hold on. Like, so they didn't find this result in this one and mm. so on. And there's a good contrast where you can see when they talk about sample size, which again, Adia raises here. By the way, this goes back to our earlier discussion. 
there could be a huge signal here and we're underpowered. How many subjects were in this? You, this, you wouldn't have a lot of subjects in this experiment. Yeah, this is, no, you, it, and this just speaks to the general challenge of doing this kind of work. It's hard to get a lot of people in and through the scanner. Yeah, and it's expensive. Um, and it's I mean, expensive. Uh, we have to, I should know this, but we can, um, we can go back to the, but you, you can I'll, sort of just look at the number of dots on here. I mean, it's in the low tens, yep, right? It's like yep. 40, 30, something yep. like that. It's not, so, so it's possible you do it's this with a Danish study. Yeah, yeah you do this yeah. with a thousand people. This could all be statistically significant, right? It was, um, so they talk about this, you know, based on this, we estimated that an N of 20 N is sample size in each belief condition, the final sample would provide 90% power to detect an effect of this magnitude at an alpha of 0. 0.5 in a two-tailed um, test. Okay, so, so that's, that's it, them referring to what we just talked about, yeah, which is we analysis. believe at 90% confidence to get an alpha of 0. 0.05, which means we want to be 95% confidence, we need six in the medium and the high group in fMRI. Uh, kind, right? Because he's suggesting that the study is underpowered and that's why you get yeah. these non-significant effects. But the other possibility <laughs> is that being more highly powered, you would find that like... Uh, yeah, you could, the, confirm, you could confirm the effects are either non-existent or extremely small. And Yes, you know, exactly keeps, right. Yeah, Hillman keeps referring, keeps referring to the findings as surprising. Like surprising they didn't find this difference. Surprising they didn't find that difference. But it's it's not surprising though, is it? I mean, if your assumption is that if there's an effect here, it's probably quite small and you've got a, a small N study, then not surprising at all. So a lot of people think Dennis Prager is an Orthodox Jew. He is not Orthodox in the sense of belonging to the Orthodox denomination of Judaism. He believes in his own mind, and some people could make an argument for, for this, that he is small O Orthodox, that he is aligned with the you know Torah perspective on things. But he's certainly not a big O Orthodox, meaning a member of you know, a particular denomination. So he does not accept the oral Torah, for example, as coming you know from from God. <laughs> you know, no, it no, it would be, <laughs> be surprising if you assumed the effect was huge. And yeah, exactly. And so you know, again, I think that some people will regard that as like, well, you know, this is just a difference in character. You know, Huberman, there's a lot to get excited about the study, but I want to show the, the conclusion that he reaches, having gone through this, and I talked about it. Right. So some people are just excitable, and I am excitable in many conditions. And when I'm excitable, I'm not particularly reliable. Excitable people are not reliable. Andrew Huberman, Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes, Tucker Carlson are highly excitable and therefore highly unreliable all these issues about small sample size and actually they didn't find a result in two out of the three measures that they're using in the fMRI and not the behavioral measure then. So, you know, my glee for this experiment is not, or this paper rather, is not because I think it's the be all end all or it's a perfect experiment. I just think it's so very cool that they're starting to explore dose dependence of belief because that has all sorts of implications. I mean, um, use your imagination, folks, whether or not we're talking about um, a drug we're talking about a behavioral intervention. We're talking about a vaccine. And I'm not referring to any one specific vaccine. I'm just talking to vaccines generally. I'm talking about <laughs> psychoactive drugs. I'm talking about um, illicit drugs. I'm talking about antidepressants. I'm talking about all the sorts of drugs we were talking about before, metformin, et cetera. Just throw our arms around all of it. What we believe about the effects of a drug, presumably, in addition to what we believe about how much we're taking and what those effects ought to be, clearly are impacting at least the way that our brain reacts to, to those drugs. <laughs> little, little concerning. A few notes there, yeah. concerning to me. Yeah, well, so, you know, because the, the, the first bit is like, you know, this isn't the perfect experiment, this, which is fine, that's good. But but then it's like the implications about this dose-dependent effect are stunning, right? They yeah. reach across all uh, vaccines, like he references vaccines there. And he's quick to say, I'm not talking about any specific vaccine. This, I think, harkens to Huberman's absolute allergy to discussing vaccines in a positive way during yeah. the pandemic. But yeah. even if this were true, Matt, right? vaccines what implication does this have because whatever your internal assessment does right like the extra power or whatever it adds it is not 
giving your immune system the information to help it fight a virus that it hasn't encountered, yeah. right? No, so that's right. There's a huge difference. I think, well, first of all, Chris, before we forget, I just, I just don't get his enthusiasm for this, why it's so exciting that there's like a dose-dependent relationship. Like they had a low, medium, and high condition in terms of the placebo. That's been done heaps, right? You can give people a blue pill or a bright red pill or a you know, medicine that tastes really strong or one that doesn't, and you see these effects. I mean, you could vary the dose. I don't understand why that's such a big deal. But as you say, the main thing is that you can see these like placebo type psychosomatic effects, which I accept are almost certainly real to some degree because the psychology interacts with the neurophysiology and percolates down into the, into the body. And you could see effects even further afield in terms of cortisol levels or stress and things like that. You're going to see effects on things that are more psychosomatic or things that are more mm. related to psychology, psychology. And that's why this study here is more plausible than say some of those other ones, like the hotel people working away, because like that's, that's just straight up metabolism, right? And, and it's happening over a period of weeks. So that's fairly different from from this, which is about concentration and reward processing and stuff like that, stuff which is actually more tightly connected to how you perceive things and like psychological effects. But then when you actually go even further afield to like how the immune system works, and you're talking about what T cells getting trained to recognize antibodies and stuff like that, and you're like the idea that there's going to be a placebo effect there. Um, and that this has some implications for how other types of or all kinds of drugs, but including vaccines should be administered or, or approached. That seems nuts to me. That's a huge it's not just a stretch it's, it's a huge galloping flying leap yeah and and just to be clear that we're not over interpreting so he he goes on a bit here yeah to take this to maybe the adhd realm let's say a kid has been on adhd meds for a while and the parents for whatever reason the physician decide they want to cut back on the dosage um but if they were to tell the kid it's the same dosage they've always been taking and it's had a certain positive effect for them according to the results at least in this paper uh, which are not definitive but are interesting the lower dose may be as effective simply on the basis of belief and and this is the part that makes it so cool to me is that and it's not a kid tricking themselves or the parents tricking the kid so much as the brain activation is corresponding to the belief, right? Yeah. So that's where this, no, this, this is why, because it's done in the brain, I think we can, um, you know, it gets to these kind of abstract, uh, nearly mystical, but not quite mystical aspects of belief effects, which is that, you know, your brain is a prediction making machine. It's a, a data interpretation machine, but it's clear that one of the more important pieces of data are your beliefs about how these things impact you. Uh, so it's not that this bypasses physiology. People aren't deluding themselves. The thalamus is behaving as if it's a high dose when it's the same dose as the low dose group. It's just yeah. it's like he's now kind of here, apart from a couple of throwaway sentences, it's as if this fact, effect is completely established, right? And that the implications are stunning. And what he describes is like, he says, you know, it wouldn't be unethical, but like actually telling the patient that they're receiving a different dosage that is inaccurate on the basis that their placebo reaction will potentially produce the same effect. Like, no, that, that's not ethical, right? And it's relying on, you know, an over-extrapolation, which is that you could produce these exact same effects. And, you know, especially when he just talked about vaccines and stuff in the preceding discussion, you're like, mm. yeah, but that, it doesn't work like that, right? Like you say, you might be able to get it for some specific occasions or individuals or, or some specific drugs. And maybe you can, but the way that he's presenting it is like, well, this looks like it can produce the same effect as taking the drug. Just tell someone that they're taking like a stronger drug and it will do all the same stuff. And you're like, yeah, eh, yeah. A- <laughs> I know it's like the general theme and it's consistent with what we've seen of him before. It's just that kind of wild exuberance um, or, you know, overconfidence in, in particular studies and, and running with, you know, as you say, apart from the kind of throwaway studies, which is, you know, further research required, et cetera. But you can kind of tell that he kind of believes it and runs with it and is forms a, like a view of all of these things, which is informed by the assumption that a lot of these studies are largely confirmed. The extrapolation is really quite large too. Like I, I got to keep delineating the reasonable and the unreasonable version of, of these kinds of things. Like, like a reasonable version is if you're wanting to quit smoking and say you're, you're vaping, a good way to go about it is to gradually reduce the nicotine in your mix. All of the behavioral type of things are kind of the same. The sensory motor type thing is the same. And you're, you're sort of disconnecting the, the physiological substance addiction from all of the psychological aspects of addiction. And it's easier to sort of divide and conquer and uh, quit that way. That's, that's a super reasonable application of what um, he's talking about. But but going on to, and maybe we can do it for this and give it to kids with ADHD, we can tell kids ADHD and 
vaccines or any any supplement or any kind of medicine you can imagine, just believe it and make it so. Um, that's that's a wild extrapolation from what is a very weak um, set of results in this study. Yeah, and and I know the vaccination one just like stuck on me, but just that doesn't make any sense <laughs> because it implies that the the kind of biological process for which vaccines work is manipulated by the strength of believing in the vaccine but like vaccines work by giving the immune system experience of a particular kind of virus so you can store the the relative instructions for when you encounter the actual virus so just like that you can't do that through yeah your your mental part just think about yeah. covid right just yeah. think about it a lot right. and you'll... There, there, there are some aspects of our physiology which you can control psychologically right like if you if you sit down you take deep breaths and you think calm thoughts you can yeah. reduce you can reduce your heart rate right there's yeah. lots of, we, we, can, we can make a big list of things that are kind of controllable but there's there's a lot of things which really are not <laughs> right and for the, the operation of the immune system except perhaps with a very limited degree of maybe if you're super stressed or something like that then you know could, maybe that's gonna have an effect but you know largely yeah it's just over extrapolation is how i would describe it yeah and so one last example matt before we get into rounding up on this episode so i think another good illustration it comes from much earlier in the, the discussion where it shows the differences between them and and a little bit i think huberman's particular interests come into play so this is talking Addy is talking about limitations again of research and um, to get onto the topic of comparing mediators and non-mediators yes although again this is a this is a great opportunity to talk about why no matter how slick you are no matter how slick your model is you can't control for everything there's a reason that to my knowledge virtually every study that compares meat eaters to non-meat eaters finds an advantage amongst the non-meat eaters and we can talk about all lifespan the, advantage yes and we can or disease you know incidence uh, studies and yeah it might be tempting to say well therefore eating meat is bad um, until you realize that it takes a lot of work to not eat meat. That's a very, very significant decision that a person, for most people, it's a very significant decision a person makes. And for a person to make that decision, they probably have a very high conviction about the benefit of that to their health. And it is probably the case that, that they're making other changes with respect to their health as well that are a little more difficult to measure. Now, there's a million other problems with that. I picked a silly example because the whole meat discussion then gets into, well, you know, when, when we say eating meat, what do we mean? Like, yeah, the document is like deli meat versus grass exactly. fed or, yeah, or yeah, a, you know, a deer that you hunted with your bow. <laughs> that, that's right. totally so, so, so how do we get into all those things? But my point is, it's very difficult to quantify some of the intangible differences. And I think that even a study that goes to great lengths, as this one does, epidemiologically to make these corrections can never make the corrections. And so for me, the big takeaway of this study is one, this makes much more sense to me than the Bannister paper, which never really made sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So Adio is making a good point throughout, right, which um, is worth repeating that experimental type studies and observational longitudinal epidemiological studies complement each other in a way in terms of their strengths and, and weaknesses. And, and Adia spells that out quite well. The example of finding out that you know, people who don't eat meat are healthier than people who do eat meat is a good example of where it's difficult to uh, isolate and attribute causality to that one specific thing because it's confounded with a whole bunch of other things. Famous examples that people will probably remember the headlines too, which is drinking a glass of red wine every day or eating dark chocolate or something is, is going to make you healthier in a variety of ways. It's almost certainly um, the case that it's it, it's other socioeconomic lifestyle correlates of those things that are having uh, observed differences. But I feel like Huberman is just kind of missing the point a bit when he's talking about, oh, well, yes, that's right. There's all these nuances. Like, was it, was it grass-fed? Was it deli meat? Or was it, was it a deer that you hunted with a bow? That's, that's really important. That's, that's not what I was talking about. Yeah, just that bull hunting, you know, the, the reference there. I wonder who that is pointing to. But yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a difference. Um, and, and this is not to say I think that Adia is not part of that world also. I, I think he is. But from my reading of this conversation, I, I think Adia really has chaps when it comes to critically reading studies and that kind of thing and yeah. i i'm not saying huberman doesn't have 
them to some degree, but it, it definitely looks to be like a pre-replication crisis academic approach to reading papers. Yeah, 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 I think that's fair. And that is an interesting case, isn't it? Because he, like Huberman, is very much a self-experimenter. He, he talks about how he went on, was it Metformin? I'm forgetting the Metformin, yeah. Metformin. Uh, he went on that based on the original study, which, which he said that he didn't really... Oh, no, no, no. He went on it before even the Banister study. Oh, like, okay. Just, remember, just, like this? Yeah, just I made one. that mistake. But he did kind of point out that the Banister study was the, you know, the big thing that made it like become... Yeah. Very influential, but he was on it <laughs> based on based on even less evidence, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's interesting. And, and then the, that one came out, and then he he read this paper, which is kind of debunking the thing that he'd committed to, and he read it with like a, a receptive mind, shall we say? And for him, it, it kind of sealed the lid on this thing. And it's just an interesting combination of things, because like you said, he clearly can he can read studies. He's he's got a good sort of scientific approach to these things. Um, but he's also a self experimenter, and is, he is, on one hand, he does reevaluate, like he is he's reevaluating. His, yeah. his his choices based on the new evidence that comes in, but it's just interesting that he he sort of is is yeah. I'm impressed at the level of conviction that we see amongst like uh, Adi or whatever because you know they're talking about years of their life dedicated to taking something which they then think actually it wasn't yeah and, it was... and it's sometimes extremely dysphoric right like it makes yeah them not sick. eating yeah or it makes them nauseous for for days you know um yeah like I, I, you know you got you got to hand it to them it's impressive to do that um. I guess. Yeah, I, so my take on this whole area, like this content that we're covering is it is a separate area and it's much more aligned with the kind of academic sphere. In a way, this is people sitting down and talking for hours about studies, doing critical analysis of studies, or at least purporting to. And lots of the information that they give, I think is good, is valid. Unlike, say, a Brett Weinstein, where I think if you listen to it, you're actively being misinformed about yeah, the about everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's right. These guys are like a, a many, many rungs above above Heather and Brett, for instance. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so our criticisms are, you know, are kind of a little bit subtle, I suppose, or not, not subtle. Well, that's not the word, but we're, we're hitting some finer points, except with the, the, the vaccination thing. That, that's, that's, that's a big one. With Huberman. Yeah, with Huberman. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not quite sure how to think about these guys because on one hand, like you can think of them as enthusiasts and as this being a very serious hobby. You know, some people are into model trains, some people are into succulents. For them, the self-experimentation and optimizing their strength and their fitness and their health and their, their longevity and all that stuff is is like a, an odd hobby. Yeah, like bodybuilders. Yeah, like, like bodybuilders or people that are into piercings or, or whatever. We, you wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everyone. Everyone, but it's like, well, you do you, that's, that's, that's fine. But I suppose you have to be careful when it comes to health and wellness because, you know, mm. there's a reason why vaccines attract so many delusional beliefs and conspiracy theories. There's a reason why the supplement industry is worth untold billions of dollars. And because I think it's different from model trains or, or succulents in that I think people have an underlying vulnerability to these existential issues of about, about death and about health um, and about being, being strong and fit and all of those things, which can, can, can make it risky. The thing which like sticks for me when looking at this is that they're all about micromanaging you know, your health and the relative levels of different micro particles in your blood and all this kind of thing, right? And in a global pandemic, Huberman never did an episode recommending vaccination, which is the most scientifically supported and lowest cost intervention for your health. And yeah. he steered away from it because I'm extrapolating, but like he's clearly implied that he doesn't want to alienate part of his audience and, and that. But if you were a guy that was just about the science, about health optimizing, and you're willing to talk about these controversial things like metformin, right, which haven't been proven, you'll talk about them at some depth and yet you won't touch vaccination yeah. and yeah. you're good friends with Joe Rogan and all the influencers set and you're promoting supplements. That's what makes me raise the eyebrow that it's not about that everything that Herman says is bullshit or the things that he promotes are wrong, but like it is a kind of spin off the, off the health and wellness space. I think it's health and wellness for men. And that's why in a, a part of it, I think the, the scientific aspect has, has an appeal, right? Because you're, you're not doing dieting, you're doing optimizing, right? And uh, so one thing that people dinged me for before when we talked about Huberman is saying like, he doesn't have his own supplement brand, right? But he, he actually works with another company. So let, let me just play the clip of him um, promoting supplements. 
please also check out the sponsors mentioned at the beginning and throughout today's episode. That's the best way to support this podcast. Not so much on today's episode, but on many previous episodes of the Huberman Lab podcast, we discussed supplements. While supplements aren't necessary for everybody, many people derive tremendous benefit from them for things like enhancing sleep, for hormone support, and for focus. The Huberman Lab podcast has partnered with Momentus Supplements. If you'd like to access the supplements discussed on the Huberman Lab podcast, you can go to LiveMomentus, spelled O-U-S. So it's LiveMomentus.com slash Huberman. You can also receive 20% off. Again, that's LiveMomentus, spelled O-U-S, dot com slash Huberman. So I just, as I said, if you don't think Huberman's shilling supplements, uh, like, my God, he gives you the discount code at slash Huberman. If you go, his picture is there with, you know, Momentus X Huberman. And, yep. um, and, yep. and that, yeah, a lot of, lot of good critiques here of uh, Andrew Huberman and, you know, a part of the, the self-help optimized health uh, space that pushes you know, billions of dollars of frequently worthless and dangerous supplements, but uh, denies the, the one optimizing thing that you can do for your health that is shown to have a very significant effect in a positive direction, and that's to get vaccinated, including get vaccinated for COVID. All right, uh, got a couple of lefty professors here who've got some interesting things to say. I presume they're lefties. I don't actually know that. This is on Times Radio. The headline, Israel's forever war. What Hamas learned from 40 years of U.S. security strategy. Actions are really good for Israel's security in the medium and the long term. And we have seen several military assaults on Gaza over the years, which have not actually prevented the rocket attacks by Hamas. They didn't prevent uh, October the 7th. And I think there is a, you know, there is a huge question mark over whether the large scale. Okay, there's a couple of professors saying Israel must learn from the failures of the war on terror to properly combat Hamas and don't just create a power vacuum for other extremist groups. So these professors sound like leftists. They sound like academics. They have a soft-spoken, you know, lefty way of speaking. Doesn't mean they're wrong, right? This is Reuben Anderson, professor of social anthropology at Oxford, and David Keane, professor of complex emergencies at the London School of Economics. I think this is David Keane's killing of civilians in Gaza is really going to contribute to Israel's security over the media. So what matters is whether they're right. You know, sometimes a left-wing response of, say, egalitarianism, event, innovative ways of uh, doing things, a, a courtier morality approach to things, following the experts in, in science, sometimes that is the, the best approach. And sometimes a traditional right-wing you know, authoritarian, hierarchical, trust traditional ways is a better approach. It all depends upon circumstances, events, my dear boy, events. With some events, a left-wing approach is more effective. With other events, a centrist approach is more effective. With other events, a right-wing authoritarian approach is more effective. Medium and long term, I can see there's a short term, uh, there's a there's a short term weakening of Hamas. Um, but you know, we, we really want to draw attention to, as it were, the demand side of these problems and not just the, the supply side. What is it that makes people want to embrace violence? One can understand in a way. What the heck happened to my volume level? Yes, I see the problem. Some of that perceived imperative, you know, to respond aggressively to 9-11. Um, but this in a way is part of the problem, you know, that in these moments of uh, extreme emotion and suffering and indeed humiliation, really, for the American government in particular, you know, policies are formulated that are based in a way on this oversimplified idea that if you can get rid of a finite number of evil people, uh, you will have solve the problem. Right. This is a, an excellent critique, right? Policies based upon you can just get rid of a certain number of evil people, you solve a problem. Are those effective? If they're effective, then let's do them. If they're not effective, even though they feel good, let's do something that is effective. 
And then you get this kind of escalating and in practice endless series of interventions and wars built on that premise, you know, starting with Afghanistan and then spreading to Iraq, but also spreading much beyond that in terms of the, the Sahel, places like uh, Sri Lanka, countries like Syria as well. A lot of governments ended up invoking this idea of a global war on terror to pursue their own counterinsurgencies, to pursue their own internal repression, to get resources internationally, just as governments had done with the war. Right. Re repression of your enemies, killing your enemies, it feels good, but it's not necessarily the most effective policy. So I, I presume the professor is a lefty, but I think he's on to some important truths. Or on communism a long time ago. Uh, so these kind of projects, which start with a moment of suffering and a moment of, in a way, self-righteousness, uh, acquire really a life of their own and become fairly systematically gamed, you know, by people, security companies in Afghanistan, making huge amounts of money from the American. You know, narcissists are easily gamed. I know I have some narcissistic tendencies. There have been plenty of times in my life where I've been easily gamed by people just simply giving me some attention. And so often people who allow visceral responses to drive and command them, they can be easily predicted and gamed. So there is a time and a place and a set of circumstances where a left-wing, courtier morality, a reflexive understanding of the self, a, a belief in the rational, strategic, autonomous uh, approach to the self is more effective than just acting on visceral, traditional impulses. American taxpayer uh, and getting drawn into these peculiar arrangements where they were effectively paying the Taliban not to attack them. So you end up, as we're funding, exactly the terrorists that you claim to be that you claim to be opposing. I think there are a lot of examples where the enemy, the terrorist enemy, has actually become quite useful for repressive governments and for people making money out of a crisis and has been nurtured behind the scenes as Assad did in Syria with ISIS. So these things become very complicated very quickly uh, and they're, they're, they set up a lot of perverse incentives that we need to understand before we launch into them. And they're very difficult to, to reverse once you've started. For, for a lot of people listening, though, they might say, well, lots of people will say, well, it's not complicated at all if you see, you know, scenes of devastation or murders by terrorists or terror attacks, what is complicated morally about trying to get the people who did it? You know, that you, you may say that's simplified, but for some people, the moral dimension is incredibly clear. I, I agree that uh, for some people, the moral dimension is incredibly clear. But that Right. Just because the moral dimension is incredibly clear, it doesn't mean that uh, you therefore should follow the policies that you believe follow from the moral dimension, right? Everybody's got a different hero system, right? Hamas has a hero system. Osama bin Laden has a hero system. Uh, you know, secularists in France have a different hero system from me, an Orthodox Jew in Los Angeles. Now, I believe that my hero system is more true than their hero system, but I recognize that everybody's operating out of different hero systems. And to be effective in the world, you need to recognize what are the competing hero systems that are most relevant to a particular situation. That is also a moment of extreme moral danger. Uh, and I think you know, one of the things that we've missed, and it's obviously very relevant today, is that if you, you know, the greater the indiscriminacy in your counterterrorism policy, the more civilians get killed. Uh... Good point. So just because he's speaking in a, a soft, gentlemanly way does not mean that he's wrong. Autistic Merrick makes a great point here. Speaking of Ukrainian women, YouTube ads have recently kindly informed me that many Ukrainian women with traditional values are looking to be loved by Western men. 
the more countries get roped in that were not part of the original 9-11 conspiracy, uh, the more enemies you're actually going to be creating. So we know that terrorist attacks actually rose globally from about 3,000 in the year 2000 to 30,000 in 2015. So that's an increase of about... Remember all the Islamic terror attacks we had in 2015 and 2016? Then Donald Trump got elected and they seem to have almost completely gone away. Uh, what's happened to Islamic terror? They seem to completely disappear under President Trump. Similarly, yeah, the explosion of Black Lives Matter in 2014, but Black Lives Matter protests were virtually completely absent from, what, the first uh, three years and three months of the Trump presidency. Um, ten times. And uh, when we get fixated on this group of people that we want to punish or eliminate, we forget that our tactics in trying to punish or eliminate them are creating so many more enemies. They're enraging people. They're making people feel that they're going to be attacked whether or not they support terrorism. And that Yeah, this is the, the key point in dividing, you know, devising social, cultural, religious, political strategy. Will your words and will your deeds arouse more opposition than support? If so, then following that approach is a losing approach. That is a very radicalizing thing to do. Well, Ruben uh, Anderson... You can look at lots of foreign policy failures in this regard. Afghanistan, a recent one. Uh, you've got lots of research on the scale of the failure of US policy there, but it's not all necessary. So that was David Keane speaking from London School of Economics. And now the next speaker after the host is Ruben Anderson, a professor of social anthropology at Oxford. Really, I don't remember the negative story. I mean, can you look at, say, the destruction of the ISIS caliphate as an example of success in the war on terror? Or is your contention that there is no such thing? It's the wrong paradigm. You can't win the war on terror. Part of the problem here is how the knowledge environment, the information environment is constructed around these often very simplified uh, wars. Uh, and that involves uh, setting out certain piecemeal successes along the way. We all remember when George W. Bush uh, said a mission accomplished back in the early days of the Iraq invasion, upon which, of course, followed, among other things, the growth. Yeah, responses, reactions, policies, procedures, words that, that uh, feel good frequently are really bad for you and for what you value. And doing the hard, unpleasant, difficult, you know, non-natural thing is uh, frequently a more effective way to go. Of ISIS on the back of the utter chaos that Iraq had been left in and huge human suffering and large-scale violence and displacement. So by presenting uh, the battle against ISIS as success, we are really broken down what is a huge failure, a huge and costly failure into a series of discrete elements that policymakers and politicians can somehow sell in the short run as wins against terrorism. But what really all these small wins are up to in the long run. Right. So what Bibi Netanyahu probably most wants is to preserve his political position. George W. Bush was probably profoundly influenced by political calculations in invading Afghanistan and Iraq. He thought it'd be good for Republican political fortunes. And he was right in 2002, probably a wash in 2004. And then because of the disastrous nature of these policies, there was a massive blowback in 2006 and 2008. It's a much larger failure. And that failure involves uh, an absence of learning, really, from the mistakes. And from right. So what's good for a political party and a politician is not necessarily good for a nation state as a whole how the interventions themselves, staging the name of fighting terror or any other given threat, have contributed and fueled the problem in the way that David just described for us. I'm interested as to, because we, we obviously wrote this book before, long before October the 7th, but I'm interested in, in your view as to where Israel's response, which many people has been infinitely analysed, uh, widely criticised, but there is, at its heart, it is a state responding to a 
terror attack by a group with the express founding purpose of killing as many Jews as possible, uh, responding in its own self-defence. Uh, obviously, since lots of things have happened and lots of allegations have been made and there have been many, many civilian casualties in Gaza, but I'm interested in, in your view, Ruben, as to where, how, how, you, how the sort of what you've seen in, in the Middle East over the past uh, 50 days fits into your thesis. It's something, of course, we've been thinking about, starting with the horrific massacres of 7th of October and continuing with the horrific scale of violence in Gaza. Uh, one thing that's very important to note, I mean, we don't talk about this particular conflict in reconomics. We focus uh, on the war on terror, the global war on terror and associated wars, especially those waged uh, by states in Europe and North America. But of course, it's something we have been thinking about where we need a bit more distance. And I think often that's what's lacking here, a bit of analytical distance to take stock of what's really going on, what lessons can be learned. But I think one lesson is already coming through, uh, for instance, in the words of Joe Biden, when he said we shouldn't, uh, or Israel should not repeat the mistakes we made in the aftermath of 9-11. There may be a moment there of moral clarity, of course, of huge suffering and trauma informed by very particular histories of anti-Semitism and, uh, um, and so forth. Uh, but there were already there some lessons that perhaps uh, were being seen from Washington in how the longer-running global war on terror had been going wrong, ending with that ignominious exit from Afghanistan uh, that you played back to us at the start of this clip. So there are lessons to be learned here. We are still in the process of trying to understand what's going on, but perhaps David has a word or two to add. Well, let's move on to... Yeah. Oh, sorry, David, go on. No, I just want to say quickly, I mean, uh, a lot of people say Israel has a right to self-defence. Uh, I think, you know, from a economics point of view, one would want to ask um, what kinds of actions are really good for Israel's security in the medium and the long term. And we have seen several military assaults on Gaza over the years, which have not actually prevented the rocket attacks by Hamas. They didn't prevent October the 7th. And I think there is a, you know, there is a huge question mark over whether the large scale killing of civilians in Gaza is really going to contribute to Israel's security over the medium and long term. I can see there's a short term, uh, there's, a, there's a short term weakening of Hamas. Um, but, you know, we, we really want to draw attention to, as it were, the demand side of these problems and not just the, the supply side. What is it that makes people want to embrace violence? Which is, um, and, you know, and it's, it's, part, you know that's, that, it's partly because what happened on October the 7th was so horrific and, and, and those short term questions are so pressing for the Israelis that they I, I love the title of these two professors' new book called Reconomics, Why It's Time to End the War on Everything. So here's the introduction on Amazon. The United States' ignominious exit from Afghanistan in 2021 topped two decades of failure and devastation brought by the war on terror. A long-running fight against migration has stoked chaos and rights abuses while pushing migrants onto more dangerous routes. For its part, the war on drugs has failed to dampen narcotics demand while fueling atrocities from Mexico to the Philippines. Why do such failing policies persist for so long? Why do politicians keep feeding the very crises they say they are combating? In Reconomics, the authors analyze why disastrous policies live on, even when it's become apparent that they do not work. The perverse outcomes of the fights against terror, migration, and drugs are more than a blip. Rather, the pro proliferation of wars and pseudo-wars has become a dangerous political habit and an endless source of political advantage and profit. From combating crime to the war on drugs, from civil wars to global wars and even COVID wars, chronic failure has been harnessed to the appearance of success. Over a wide variety of spheres, problems have persisted and worsened, not so much despite the wars and fights waged against them as thanks to these floundering endeavors. Uh, provocative and important thesis. Those sort of long-term questions are much harder to consider, in the, as you say, in the, sort of, in the heat of the moment, particularly a moment so 
traumatizing and and uh, and horrific for the Israeli state and the Jewish people. It's much harder to consider take as you know to, to get even get into the realms uh, of that sort of thing when um, you know you have civilian children hostage, children held hostage underneath tunnels in Gaza and the like. Right, let's move on uh, to another war waged by politicians, particularly in the US, uh, the war on drugs. Now, David Keane, we heard generations, you know, half a century there of US politicians declaring war on drugs. Clearly, politicians across the world in, in countries that take that sort of approach to drug legislation, including here, tend to think of it primarily as a domestic issue in terms of drug use in, on the streets or the impact on individual families. But it's a global trade. And you argue that anti-drug policies such as those we just heard the likes of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush outline, you argue that those anti-drugs policies have failed to stop the supply and consumption of drugs and the global economies that sustain them. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what we want to draw attention to uh, in part in in all of our, um, all the different spheres that we're looking at, you know, the war on terror, the war on drugs, the so-called fight against illegal migration, is that there needs to be some kind of uh, cost-benefit analysis that's actually radically different from what people normally mean by a cost-benefit analysis, where we actually disaggregate and we give a good picture of on whom, on which groups do the costs of a particular policy fall and which are the groups who benefit from that policy and from the perpetuation of that policy, even when perhaps it's failing in its most loudly proclaimed aims. So this is something general that we're calling for. And I think in terms of the war on drugs, you know, there are so many costs that habitually fall under the radar. You can construct a set of metrics where you look at, you know, the drugs that have been intercepted, the drug lords who've been arrested, the area of um, drug cultivation that's been destroyed and so on, where you can register, rather like we were talking about with the war on terror, you can register a whole series of successes that are politically advantageous. Um, but then what tends to go missing is perhaps the fact very often that drugs production has been increasing, that the flows of drugs into other countries have been increasing. And there's a- Okay, I wanna address something in the chat. Phil McKill says, I was laughed out of this chat when I said Mossad not only knew about the October 7 attack by Hamas, that it was coming, but Mossad promoted it now more and more come out in support of that. And then uh, Horatia says, yeah, the new revelations that they got Hamas's entire plot one year before, deemed it unlikely to happen is pretty damning. Well, yeah, it's damning of incompetence. I don't think it's damning that uh, uh, Mossad was actively assisting the or deliberately, you know, allowing this this massacre to take place, right? I think it's damning of Mossad incompetence. I don't think it's damning of some kind of inside job like uh, the, the loose change documentary with its bogus charges about what happened on 9-11 a very selective use of metrics there. So alongside that story of success, which in many ways is a phony story, we find these, as it were, hidden failures, some of which are quite familiar, uh, in terms of the massive violence in somewhere like Mexico, uh, the gaming of the war on terror in the Philippines, the mass incarceration in the United States, you know, about 300,000 people incarcerated in 1980 when Reagan came into power, rising to about 2 million by the turn of the century. I mean, that is a massive human catastrophe and a scandal that is in large part, but not entirely, the result of the, the war on drugs. Um, so we want to draw attention to those costs and also to the people that are gaming uh, this war, just as they've gamed many other kinds of wars. And uh, Ruben uh, Anderson, what, what, you know, is the solution a sort of, a sort of approach? Right, where we launch a war on poverty or a war on drugs or a war on Hamas, right? There, there are people who are profiting from that whether it's in their own social status or some other way. And I think this is an excellent and important type of analysis. You've seen in, in Portugal where the whole system has been decriminalised. There's certainly a lot of very good lessons to learn from 
well, partial decriminalization, we should say, it's because many of the countries that have experimented with this haven't gone the whole way. They have perhaps uh, legalized or non-enforced uh, consumption, uh, but retain other bits of, of the criminalization spectrum. But there are many lessons to be learned from a harm reduction approach to drugs that don't have to go all the way towards a full-scale commercialization of drugs, for instance. And Portugal is one of those countries that had experimented with this, has seen some relatively positive results. And we should always remember the true scale of uh, the disasters in the wake of the war on drugs. Mass incarceration, as David mentioned, uh, huge scale of violence in countries for the transit of drugs, some 360,000 homicides in Mexico since Felipe Calderón started his war on drugs in the mid-2000s, for instance. Duterte, similar large-scale killing campaigns. Mm. And of course, a huge health costs of drug abuse and unhealthy, unsafe drug use in destination countries claims tens upon tens of thousands of lives. Um, so clearly there's a strong public health case here for moving towards another approach that takes account of the full costs of the current enforcement-led approach. And Yeah, sounds like uh, some excellent ideas here from this new book, Reconomics, why it's time to end the war on everything. That's it for me. Bye-bye.